0: Last summer, I took a trip to the South and learned about a series of brutal murders that took place in 1911 and 1912 along the bayous of South Louisiana. The legend goes that the crimes were connected to human sacrifice that took place as part of the voodoo ritual. Around the same time, rumors were swirling that the priestess was the leader of some kind of cult called the Church of Sacrifice. She was arrested and confessed to many murders and using voodoo as part of her murder spree and said that the practice gave her powers of invisibility. Her ghost still haunts her old home
1: to this day. Have, a Have you heard the story of... <laughs> to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake.
2: And I'm Sam.
1: And we're here to tell you a story.
2: Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans.
1: I want to welcome you all back, starting off our second century of episodes.
2: Oh, you're right. We're a century old. I feel wise. Do you feel wise? Maybe a little. It'll last like seven seconds, and then I'll say something asinine.
1: Don't worry. It's guaranteed to happen. We do want to thank all of you for coming back. We want to thank everybody for leaving ratings and reviews. We do have a few new ones from RCG71 and Epidemic Hillary. They're all entered into our special Halloween 100th anniversary contest.
2: The Magical Mystery Hat, Jacob. It's called a Magical Mystery Hat. How do you forget that?
1: The label must have fallen off.
2: Clearly, we need some better epoxy.
1: But we do want to remind all of you to go and leave a review. Give us a shout out on Twitter. Your name will go into that magical mystery hat. And we will be drawing before next week's episode. So you have one more week to get that in. To win a free t-shirt. And we do want to remind you, you can contact us through email. Social media, all at Just a Story Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can also check out our website.
2: We have a website. That's true. It's just a story com, And that's where we put up our sources for each episode, along with all of our illustrations and sometimes image galleries that clarify and add further context to the content we've produced. I don't know why I'm talking like I'm on NPR. I think I'm afraid of saying something asinine.
1: Sweaty balls. <laughs>
2: hmm. These are lovely.
1: On our website, you can find links to our Patreon page.
2: Patreon page is where you can go to become a sustaining member if you'd like to contribute to our sweaty balls. Hmm? I don't know. It was on an N V R thing. I just went with it. But you Tote bag? What? You get a free tote bag. No, there's no tote bag. Well, there are. You can buy merch, too.
1: And If you do want that tote bag or other merch, you can check out our merch store, which you can find links to on our website.
2: And there's one more way to reach out to us if you... Just feel the need, and that is the Urban Legend Hotline. And you can call the Urban Legend Hotline by dialing 512-222-3375. And there, you may leave us your life story, a little story, a big story, whatever kind of story you've got. Maybe an urban legend. That would work too, or, you know, blackmail material, whatever you got handy.
1: So Sam, back to the story at hand.
2: Oh my god. Goodness, all of the stories at hand, Jacob.
1: We are going to be covering a few different stories. We're continuing our in-depth investigation into voodoo. And today we're moving to the bayous, the deep south of Louisiana.
2: Like here, like where we are now. Like yeah. we moved here a few <laughs> months ago, actually.
1: And today we're going to start with an infamous voodoo murder.
2: Wait. Okay. Okay. I'm going with it. Nope. Nope. Not going to correct you before you even say it, but let's just... Let that wash over us for a second. An infamous voodoo murder. Okay. You heard me. I heard you.
1: So on January twenty-six of 1911, the mutilated remains of Walter Byers, his wife, and son were found in a cabin. Their heads had been crushed with an axe. And this had been committed several days prior to discovery. The officer found the three bodies with skulls split open, beds drenched in blood, bloody footprints, a bucket of blood in one corner, and at the head of the bed stood a bloodied axe.
2: Like just set up there, like yeah. on display? Okay, yeah. This is not a crime of passion that just got a little out of hand. This looks like some kind of staged horror movie set.
1: It sounds like it. Okay. So four weeks later, on February 25th, another tragedy Andrus family of Lafayette, Louisiana. The headline read, Horrible crime. Whole family of four brutally murdered while asleep. All, quote, brained with an axe.
2: Ugh. That's tasteless and, like, way too evocative.
1: <laughs> the Lafayette advertiser continued, The man and woman were taken up by the murder and placed on their knees besides the bed. The woman's arm over the man's shoulder, as if in the attitude of prayer... The baby was then placed besides the mother on the bed.
2: Oh, part of me is having a really hard time imagining that this is true. Oh, it's true. Like, it's actually making me a little sick to think about it. And I read a lot about murder. I don't know why this gets to me. like, my feet are numb.
1: Well, to take a true legendary turn, the sheriff, Lacoste, initially suspected that this might be an escaped lunatic from the state insane asylum in Pineville. Mm-hmm. Central, by, uh, yeah, I know it. <laughs> yeah, by the name of... Garcon Godfrey. Did
2: he have a hook for a hand?
1: I don't think so. But okay. he did have an alibi. Oh, damn. And so he was taken and just sent back up to Central, mm. as they say.
2: That's probably for the best, but I'm sad it wasn't him because that would have uh, tied that up all neat and prim.
1: So this author in the Lafayette Advertiser begins to kind of put things together, mm. linking this murder. To the other murders which took place in Crowley, Louisiana, which is about mm, 30 miles northwest of Lafayette. And to a murder that had occurred two years prior mm-hmm. in Rain, saying, The crimes are so alike that they may be the work of the same terrible monster.
2: So Rain, for those of you who don't know, is another town in Louisiana. Yes.
1: <laughs> now six months had passed and finally police began to suspect that someone named Raymond Barnabet. Mm-hmm. So he was a local petty criminal and a sharecropper from Lafayette. And whenever his estranged mistress just kind of bitching about him to a friend and said that Raymond had revealed some grisly details about the crime.
2: He probably read them in a headline. I would like to remind you, it said brained with an ax in the headline.
1: <laughs> they didn't leave much out back then. But there's a strange common law wife And two children quickly implicated him as well.
2: Okay, so they were not fond of Raymond.
1: No, they said he returned late at night, covered in blood and brain matter.
2: Okay, so that's gross.
1: Saying that Raymond had admitted to the murder of the Andrews family and shared details with them. He bragged that he'd killed the whole damn Andrews family and threatened to kill them if they told anybody.
2: I was about to say, how long had it been since then? And they were just like living with him in the house? No. 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 You sneak out, you go find somebody. You're like, my dad brained people. Well, it's important
1: to point out, I haven't said yet, these are all African American people. Okay, so this 1911, is... 1911, yeah. South Louisiana.
2: Okay, so they're not exactly calling out to the justice system for help. That's so different now.
1: Now, the neighbors testified that the Barnabats, the whole family, were, quote, filthy, shifty degenerates. And he was actually found guilty of the crimes, but he was granted a retrial.
2: For what reason?
1: His trial attorney Mm -hmm. convinced the judge that Raymond was too drunk to testify on his own behalf. So they had to do it again.
2: Like the day of his testimony, he was drunk. Oh, yeah. Yep. This sounds like Lafayette, Louisiana.
1: (laughs) But while Raymond sat in jail, another murder Mm. took place. On November 26th, 1911, Norbert Randall, his wife, three children, oh and nephew were all murdered in Lafayette, all, quote, lying on two beds in the same room and fearfully mutilated, all murdered with the same axe, each head being beaten into jelly.
2: Jesus Christ, the prose on these people. The writing is so lurid. Of course. Eh, not of course. That's why we love reading these old papers. I know, but it's like brain matter and jelly and... uh, uh.
1: The sheriff thought that Rayman was still involved and that he must be in collusion with someone to commit these heinous murders.
2: I mean, that's a hell of an ask. It's not like, would you drop this package of stolen goods off for me? It's like, would you go brain five innocent humans with an axe so I can have shadow of a doubt
1: it gets confusing, it does, because it's like, who would do that?
2: No one likes him that much. it in our family turned on him in two seconds. I don't think they're that loyal.
1: Now, upon investigating these murders, the Daily Picayune reported on November 28th, 1911, that his children, Clementine and Zephyrin.
2: Which, by the way, great job with those names. I actually really like both of them. Great
1: names. They're the ones that testified against him. Mm-hmm. They were now wanted. Now, they investigated the home where they were staying and found a complete suit of woman's clothes in Clementine's room, saturated with blood and covered with human brains.
2: Is that true?
1: The details change in different stories.
2: I like, I want to go talk to the cops so badly.
1: He's been dead a little while. I know,
2: but I want to. Where are the police reports? I need so much information.
1: But the latch on the door is also covered in blood. Now, Zephyrin was able to provide an alibi for the night of the murders, but Clementine did not have one, and was taken to jail. So guess what happens after she gets locked up?
2: Another murder.
1: Another murder. Ah. And this is where it takes a crazy turn.
2: Wait, now. Here?
1: Yeah. Just now? It's going to take a few. <laughs> uh, okay. In January of 1912, three more families were murdered.
2: Three entire families in, in a month?
1: Uh, about, yeah.
2: Oh my god. Got yeah, two months. Why isn't this like as well known as like Albert Fish? Like why is this still a secret? I've never heard anyone talk about.
1: It's really not well known.
2: But this is a huge string of murders.
1: So in this third instance, this third instance of a family being killed, and Felix Broussard, his wife, and their three children were killed on Lake Charles, Louisiana, the killer, our killers, splayed the victim's hands apart with pieces of wood. And quote, those of the children being wedged open with paper and fastened with pins.
2: Oh my, no. They left a
1: handwritten message on the wall. Some sources say written in blood, others in pencil.
2: I bet it was lipstick.
1: Either way, it's spelled out. When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Which is from Psalms 912. And it was signed, Human 5.
2: I have no idea.
1: Also, for reference, Lake Charles
2: is a good ch- is a
1: solid two hours drive on the interstate from Lafayette.
2: Okay, and when you say that the hands were splayed open, you mean like made to have?
1: Like all five fingers apart. Okay. they are illustrations in the paper.
2: Oh my God, Lafayette. Stop it. Psalms. Mm-hmm. Bible. Yeah. <laughs> Human five. I
1: don't know.
2: What the fuck is human five?
1: No one knows.
2: I wish I could see the writing to be like, that's not what that says. <laughs> that says someone's name. Go arrest them.
1: Who knows? It may have been. Who knows? It may have been written in blood. Blood. So this starts to get some press around the area.
2: Uh huh. Well, yeah.
1: So the El Paso Herald, which is a very far away from this. Yes. It's on the yes. other side of Texas. Reports. Voodoo horrors break out again.
2: Why the voodoo now? What are they, again, too?
1: Oh, again. How the cruel and gruesome murders of Africa's wicked serpent worship have been revived in Louisiana by a fanatic sect of sacrifice. All the horrors of voodooism with sacrifice of human life have been revived here by fanatical Negroes of the rice belt.
2: The rice belt?
1: (laughs) Yeah. In whom atavistic tendencies have, for some reason become rampant 26 persons have already been murdered in the right of the sacrifice sect as the new high priestess of voodooism are known so the writer goes on to inform us that five is an important spiritual evil number i don't know where he's getting that shit from I'm just making things up now
2: really have you consulted the cosmology there buddy
1: and the police have no clue to the actual perpetrators of these crimes
2: that's that's actually seems true that's, true. that's like the first true thing he said
1: And he also states that, you know, people are keeping quiet about this because they're so afraid of the voodoo practitioners. In this country, fortunately, human sacrifice has been comparatively rare, (laughs) even amongst the most rabid of the believers in voodoo, the fanatics, contenting themselves with self-inflicted torture of various degrees and descriptions. In Cuba and Haiti, however, where belief in voodoo is very prevalent there is a limit to the excess in which these fanatics indulge at their orgies. Just how far the programs followed by these collaborations is being followed in the rice belt here during the present outbreak is doubtful, but it seems probable that the order of ceremonies is not very dissimilar.
2: Are you... I would love to see his sources.
1: And so he talks about the snake and the drinking of blood and the sacrifice of human children.
2: What the fuck? Okay, right, right. well, I'm giving him some rope to hang himself here.
1: Well, you know, they they sacrifice the goat without horns, which presently is a little white girl of five or six years of age. Why
2: is she white?
1: And is brought in, bound, hand and foot, and fastened to the end of a rope, running over a pulley in a tree.
2: I would love to see his sources. There's a hush, Mm. an
1: awful pause for a moment. Mm. And then, and a signal, up goes the child, off falls its head at a single blow from a machete.
2: So he's saying this is what's going on in Haiti and Cuba, and now it's going on in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And so, um, first question, where in Haiti are they finding this trove of little white girls?
1: I guess they keep them.
2: Okay, uh, two w- the pulley system,
1: I, very intricately rigged. Yes. Okay. It's Quite nice.
2: <laughs> it's like a reverse guillotine where the person goes. Yeah. Up. I don't.
1: It's yeah. It's okay. Ceremony. It's for effect. For effect.
2: <laughs> okay. Well.
1: But you know, I mean, as reported in the papers, the citizens of the black communities were terrified because there was a murderer on loose.
2: I mean, that tends to do it. It's not like oh, don't go out at night. It's like don't fucking go to sleep
1: yeah i mean mean, like
2: this is coming into people's houses oh yeah
1: while they're asleep
2: and they're just getting murdered
1: oh yeah so around the same time rumors began swirling that clementine was the leader of some kind of cult called the church of sacrifice
2: Mm, okay
1: they felt that she must be directing accomplices from jail to continue the ritual sacrifices
2: how old was she? 19. She would not have been allowed to do that even if there was a church of sacrifice. Oh, why? Because she's a baby. It's a
1: church of sacrifice if there really was one who says, what well, they have rules? They have rules about age if they're going to kill children?
2: Yes. Yes. <laughs> they're not animals.
1: Maybe your church of sacrifice.
2: So where did they come up with a church of sacrifice? Was that just a lapse of genuine creativity that we've seen with the pulley system earlier?
1: Well... They did bring in the supposed leader of this church, Reverend King Harris, a okay. Pentecostal revival preacher.
2: Not the same.
1: With a small congregation connected to the Christ sanctified oh. Holy Church.
2: Damn it, autocorrect.
1: Yep. Police took Harris in for interrogation after all the rumors, and the Reverend had never heard of any kind of church of sacrifice, and he said, to the best of his knowledge, their religion did not advocate. The wanton killing of men, women, and children.
2: I could just say no. But let me say this so you cannot read between the lines which do not exist.
1: Or here me like sanctified.
2: Uh, okay. So little bitty teenage Clementine is the head of the Church of Sacrifice right after Reverend King Harris, the Pentecostal minister. And they're sending people out or she now is sending people out from jail. The human
1: five.
2: <laughs> so, that really bothers me. Like that is something I can make zero sense of. Well, the fingers are like counting five. Right. So they're, they're it's
1: kind of ritualistic.
2: If that has any tie to, okay, now I'm leaving it. I'm not even gonna try to parse that. Don't. <laughs> okay. Well, Bay Clementine is in the jail. Murders are still happening. So at what point do they like realize maybe it's not this this bitsy little lady, maybe the killer is still on the loose.
1: Well, after being in jail for five months uh-huh. on April fifth, nineteen twelve, Clementine
2: Clementine is released.
1: Gives a full confession.
2: Oh, Clementine, honey, no.
1: Admitting to seventeen murders.
2: What about the other eleven?
1: She eventually does those, too. (laughs)
2: Okay. Oh, my God. What were they doing to her? Oh, exactly.
1: Headline, Creole tells of murdering 10, 18-year-old girl admits splitting open victims' heads with an axe. Laughs while relating axe.
2: So got her drunk is the answer. (laughs) They got her drunk. (laughs) So she's giggly.
1: I would go with probably, like,
2: torture
1: or (laughs) threats. So she said that on a visit to the New Iberia area, just southeast of Lafayette, she and four companions, two men and three women all together.
2: Wait, how many companions? Oh, wait, is that five?
1: Yes. They met an old black woman who showed them the ways of hoodoo.
2: In like an afternoon?
1: I guess. And they bought some conjure bags from her conjurer.
2: So the same woman that taught them the ways they ran into a hoodoo woman and a conjure woman in New Iberia
1: conjure man
2: conjure man
1: these bags the old woman assured them would protect Clementine and her accomplices from detection by the police should they desire to commit a crime
2: well that sounds tempting why don't we go and see if we can get a free soda somewhere so they decided to go see if it worked right and they went and tried to get a free soda and they got a free soda and they were like that was a fun afternoon And then Betty and Veronica came over and it was just like, awesome. Oh yeah. So that's the story. That's not what happened. Is it?
1: Oh no. She goes into lurid detail. about Mm. All of the murders. I saw the mother sleeping on the bed and I decided I would enter the house and there again. And there begin the work, which we had planned on entering the house. I struck the woman on the right temple and killed her instantly. One of the children was awakened by the noise. And before he could raise his head from the pillow, I struck a blow somewhere near the left ear. And then I struck the other two. I left the man's clothes. Oh, she dressed as a man, by the way.
2: <laughs> dressed as a man, too. Okay. Yeah.
1: Which I wore in the house and left in women's clothes. Returned to my sister's house, and later during the same night, I boarded a night train for Lafayette, arriving home here about midnight.
2: Did trains run that late? That seems really... Yeah, they were
1: hopping trains.
2: Oh, okay. And okay.
1: so then that is an important point, is that whoever did this was hopping trains, because it's the only way... That one could actually cover this much territory. Uh-huh. And all of them kind of occur along the train route.
0: Uh-huh.
1: There are some murders in Texas that were occurred kind of at this time-ish that are possibly associated with it. Okay. Which I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. If no Human
2: were. 5 signatures on the no, wall? No, there was
1: only one time. And... Some of the times, one of the murders, I think it was in Houston, occurred, and then like in less than twenty-four hours, another murder occurred, and that makes me think they might be copycats,
2: like people who just oh god, I almost said it, I almost said had an axe to grind, people who just had like a grudge against somebody else, like taking the opportunity to take them out. Well, that's unsettling. The only thing I like less than the idea of a mad killer on the list is two.
1: She said, "When we saw that we had not been detected, we decided that the hoodoos had done their part and we were safe."
2: At she, this point, you're a hoodoo.
1: <laughs> she also declared that she killed the children because she did not wish them left orphans in the world. I bet
2: they would have I bet that would have worked better for them than uh, being dead.
1: The thing is, she kept confessing and kept confessing and had new and different fun stories to go mm. along with it. Oh. But the population was willing enough to place the blame on some nebulous voodoo priestess committing murder while leading a sacrificial sect. Now, it didn't help that Clementine had named a voodoo priest who had given the invisibility charm to her, Joseph Thibodeau.
2: Was he really a priest?
1: Well, he was a root man. Like, he actually was, so he would do root medicine.
2: He's a root worker.
1: Yeah, and so one local paper explained to its readers that Thibodeau, quote, has ever been regarded as peaceful in disposition and harmless in intention, and said he was noted for the practice of conjuring warts away.
2: So it's an easy, slippery slope from there to human five.
1: And they did release him very quickly after questioning him.
2: I'm very glad to hear that, because it seems like the kind of thing that could have gone real wrong real fast.
1: The sheriff is, like, surprisingly competent,
2: for 1911, yes, Backwoods, like, Louisiana. Yes,
1: as I read the stories, because he's going like, no, it couldn't be just her. She has to have someone else got to be doing it.
2: He's not like off with her head and on oh, to the next thing. He's not like, thing. oh, it's a
1: voodoo priestess. We better just burn her.
2: <laughs> Which I'm amazed they didn't burn her.
1: Well, she was found guilty.
2: Yeah. Okay, well. Hmm.
1: From the prison stand in the courtroom, she shouted, I am the Axe woman of the sacrifice sect. I killed them all. Men, women, and babies. And I hugged the babies to my breast, but I am not guilty of murder.
2: Well, it sounds kind of like they may have driven her insane.
1: Maybe so. Now, she was sentenced to life at Louisiana Penitentiary. Is
2: that Angola?
1: Angola Prison Farm.
2: That's like burning her.
1: Well, but she did get out after 10 years.
2: Do the records support that? Oh, yes. Okay.
1: And that's the last records of her.
2: I mean, personally... If that had happened to me, I would move very far away, and I would change my name, and I would never tell nobody nothing again. I mean, she's like what thirty? You've got time, babe.
1: Oh yeah, whole life to live. Well, here's where the story takes a good urban legend twist.
2: Yay! Because all of this up to this point has been factual, as reported in newspapers from the time. Yes. I mean, well, other than yeah. the yeah, I mean the like... hornless goat or whatever. <laughs> They, this
1: is all what was reported. And okay. the murders did occur. And Clementine truly was incarcerated. incarcerated for 10 years for these murders. Okay. Now, a few years ago, Voodoo Gal 11.
2: Oh, she sounds official.
1: Wrote online about visiting her great grandmother in 1985 for her 103rd birthday. As Doing remember, that math. This story is not well known outside of Louisiana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's really not that well-known here. Now, when she was visiting her great-grandmother, she began telling her stories of a crazed killer who went on a rampage in 1911 in southeast Louisiana, and she stated that the killer, Clementine, quote, was a black woman so beautiful with alabaster skin and eyes so piercing she would look at you and turn you to stone. Now, she asked her grandmother if, if it was true, and she just... Sat there sipping her tea, rocking in her chair.
2: We've all had that moment. If you have a southern grandma, you have had that moment.
1: (laughs) Now, later that year, Voodoo Gal Levins' great-grandmother died. And so she came back down and visited the ancestral home for the funeral. Mm -hmm. While there, she saw a photo of her great-grandmother from when she was only 20 years old. She had alabaster skin, long black curly hair, and very light eyes. And then... I started trembling.
2: Do you think?
1: I don't think.
2: I don't either. (laughs) I I want it it to be true.
1: (laughs) But I love it. Because the thing is, before we go into the voodoo part of it, we know who the killer is, even though no one else does.
2: I have, good sir. My suspicions.
1: Oh, I'm almost 100% positive. We, almost a year ago, did a Patreon episode, and on our Patreon episodes, we kind of deep dive into like weird historical stories and go to like the primary sources. Like we like to do look at the newspaper clippings, read through it. And a while back we did the
2: Jake bird hex,
1: the ax murderer, Jake bird. He placed hexes while on trial.
2: Right. And the, I think the body count got Pretty impressive on that curse. As Since I'm a curse connoisseur this month, I think it was a pretty effective one.
1: He's known to be from somewhere in Louisiana.
2: And he would never specify exactly where in Louisiana he was from.
1: And the timeline's up, and he hopped trains, and he
2: killed a lot of people. With an axe. And...
1: Cursed people.
2: (laughs) Well, he said he learned some hoodoo Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. back in his day. So
1: as a special treat for all of you <laughs> to celebrate Halloween, I will post that. It's probably about an hour long in-depth dive into Jake Bird before we knew that he was the same damn person.
2: <laughs> I swear, like if it's not him, I would bet he was one of the human five. He was at least the drummer. But I'll
1: post that later this week. I knew you can be the judge. But the reason I want to start with this story is, you know, we've talked about Haitian voodoo. You know, this week we're going to talk about kind of South Louisiana voodoo. And this story is a great example of what is in the general zeitgeist of this area, especially at that time, of what voodoo is.
2: Oh, it is scary. Dark magic. Human sacrifices, hornless goats, elaborate pulley systems.
1: Now, it's fun to mention, (laughs) in the Journal of American Folklore in one of their first issues... (laughs) They did ask if voodoo is even real in South Louisiana. No. As respects Louisiana, the accessible information is small. But what we have shows the popular belief on the subject to resemble that in Haiti. The sect in New Orleans was a queen, who was one Marie Laveau, and the festivals of the Vadoos were supposed to be annual and to take place on a lonely spot near Lake Pontchartrain on St. John's Eve. It is very desirable that someone should examine these beliefs and ascertain whether any form of voodoo worship can be substantiated in Louisiana. Okay. <laughs> from the early, late
2: 1800s. Okay, honey, we're here to help. Don't worry. <laughs> We've done it. it. <laughs> many people believed, and scholars debated, for many years, no. about how New Orleans got its voodoo. Easy. Dumbala. Right. But... A lot of people speculated that when there was a big influx of Haitian immigrants after the revolution began in Saint-Dominique, they brought the traditions with them. And this could be because the first appearance of New Orleans voodoo, like the first write-up about voodoo in New Orleans, is actually just pure plagiarism. It is a word-for-word reproduction of uh, St. Marie's
1: account kind of Haitian voodoo. hmm
2: But the place names have been changed, you oh, see. Oh, well, that's easy. Because... You can't
1: Google it. <laughs> Cite your sources.
2: Cite your sources. And so people were like, wow, this is so much like Haitian voodoo. It's just got to be Haitian voodoo. Well, it was. It was just plagiarized.
1: This is my plagiarism is bad.
2: The foundation of something itself can be a misrepresentation. <laughs> and people can be confused for years. There are roots of African traditional religions predating the influx of Haitian immigrants in this area. However, there's evidence that after the Haitian Revolution... There was an emergence of like an autonomous, organized priesthood system within the practice of African traditional religion in the New Orleans area. And in New Orleans, instead of Mambo and Ugan, we have Queen and Doctor. Another thing you will read everywhere, which will be wrong. Oh, good. We're going to be doing a lot of this, is that New Orleans has Grand Zombie And Grand Zombie does not have a Haitian equivalent. It is a completely New Orleans idea. It's a zombie? It's a snake.
1: This is confusing.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It is, a little bit. So, Carolyn Long, who is mostly right about everything and a great writer, wrote this. And everywhere that it appears, it's like, New Orleans voodoo is a lot like Haitian voodoo. But they have Grand Zombie. Like, every article you'll read. And he's often represented by a snake who speaks. I don't know why he's not Damballa, like why he's not a derivative of that, why the name hasn't been changed, why it can't be an etymological discussion. It instead of seems
1: a, the same.
2: Well, I mean, Damballa, when he mounts, doesn't speak. I guess you could say that, but it's difficult to parse. It
1: just sounds like an evolution.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm not certain why that clear distinction is drawn, I guess, because there is also like a New Orleans representation of Damballa. But for whatever reason, Grand Zombies is not a zombie. Grand Zombies is a snake. He's in New Orleans. Live snakes are often used in voodoo ritual in New Orleans. And they're considered to be the keepers of intuitive knowledge, which we've actually talked about a great deal recently. Oh, yes. (laughs) The snake approached Eve and said, want to know stuff? And she was like, sure. And he was like, okay. And he gave her an apple and God got mad. But he has that intuitive, natural knowledge and therefore probably a good person to talk to if you want to know stuff. And some accounts say that it's the snake functions as sort of like an umbilical cord between the practitioner and the sacred power of the temple.
1: That's a great imagery.
2: I know. And then it's also said that the snake must be consulted in order for a person to learn how to conjure skillfully. But other than ba- Dumbala, other than an organized priesthood, There was something else about New Orleans which made it a hospitable environment for voodoo seeds to grow. I hear bells. I do, too. Tell me about your bells. Catholic bells. Catholic bells are ringing.
1: So Catholicism in New Orleans was very permissive of these kind of activities, especially related to these kind of African traditional religions. Now, in New Orleans, voodoo, there's one god. He's often viewed under the same idea as the Judeo-Christian idea. And other voodoo cultures, such as in Haiti, believe in several gods or deities called Loa, which we talked about extensively.
2: Right. They're a different echelon. They are the intermediaries, but they're still divine. And in New Orleans voodoo, they're really analogous to saints. Like their job description is very similar to saints.
1: They're much more helpers, messengers, aides for specific needs. I remember the last episode, I said, really in Haiti, to use the term syncretism is kind of off. But that's especially true when you compare it to New Orleans voodoo, mm-hmm. where it truly is more of a syncretism. There mm-hmm. is more of a melding of ideas here. The Lois take on more of a patron saint role with kind of specific areas of expertise. Now, there's definitely a big cross-cultural exchange over the last century,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and especially in the last 50, 60 years. And so when you go to New Orleans, you will see them called Loa. Mm -hmm. And you will see them with very similar names to the Haitian Loas. Uh, But prior to that, they are described as spirits instead of Loas. So there are lots and lots of examples. I mean, your favorite is St. Expedite.
2: I love Saint Expedite. So when I was in my folklore class way back in the day, we watched a presentation on folk Catholicism and I learned that Saint Expedite does not exist, but he was shipped to New Orleans in a box marked Expedite, as in get it there quickly, and people assumed that that was the name of the saint, and he's a saint, but he's only in New Orleans.
1: I heard the same story. So it's actually not true.
2: That is so disappointing because I love that story. I love that story
1: too. The same exact story exists in France. Oh. Now the nuns in Paris had a packing case which they were told containing a body of a saint from the catacombs that was sent to them. Now the date of its dispatch was indicated by the use of the word "spedito," but the recipients mistook this for the name of the martyr and set to work with great energy to propagate his cult.
2: This is how cults get started.
1: So, I always thought that that was a kind of New Orleans thing, but it's actually a French folk tradition, which is still not true.
2: (laughs) Oh, you fanciful French people. It was done for whimsy.
1: Because he is written about, and there are pictures of him from the 1700s (laughs) in like Germany and Italy, and he was used as a saint to get things done speedily
2: he was like the chilies to go of saints like i don't have time to go in and sit down and do this properly i'm just gonna get get him to bring it out to my
1: car sure (laughs) give me
2: that guy yes okay
1: he would deliver you semi-warm processed food it's
2: a good saint to have i can see why he's big in america
1: South Louisiana is rife with folk Catholicism, and you do see a lot of it incorporated into the New Orleans and South Louisiana Voodoo traditions. There's a lot of fun things that people do, (laughs) such as thanking saints through classifieds in the paper.
2: Now, there's a more ornate system of interacting with the saints through the classifieds. Oh, really? Yes. And this is actually also, along with the stories of the grisly murders committed by Clementine and or whoever else, printed in the Daily Advertiser. Well, of course.
1: It's the paper of South Louisiana Record.
2: Is it? (laughs) Apparently. Um, So the novena to St. Clair must be printed nine days in a row in the classifieds.
1: So it's like saying nine Hail Marys.
2: And you also include the prayer May the sacred heart be praised, adored, glorified, and loved today and every day throughout the world forever. And then the instructions were included. You are to publish the prayer in the newspaper with the belief that your request will be granted whether you believe it or not, no matter how impossible it may seem.
1: So if you we talked about a few other fun ones on the last episode, so just say Anthony, you can write a check to him, Mm -hmm. get what you've lost, or you can bury him in your yard if you want to sell a house.
2: Upside down though. Of course. But it's also St. Joseph, too.
1: Depends on who you ask.
2: Depends on who you ask. It's true. Y- you know
1: what? If you have a spare bathtub around...
2: You gotta make a grotto. Girl, you need to get you a grotto. And in the tradition of Mom J, one of my favorite Catholic ladies, if your children go out on prom night and steal the neighbor's Mary statue, you bury it in the backyard so they don't find out about it. She didn't
1: know they buried
2: it. <laughs> no, she buried it. She didn't want to throw it away. She didn't want them right. to get in trouble for it. <laughs> And then she dug it up when they moved and put it out. It's true. It's true. This is Jacob's grandmother, by the way. It's true. The the bathtub grottos, you'll see them around. People like saw a bathtub in half or three quarters and they'll put their Mary statue in it and plant flowers around it.
1: People keep the blessed palms from Palm Sunday in their house to keep it protected.
2: Mostly from storms.
1: We just kept them to keep as a blessing.
2: A blessing against what? Or for what? Just good luck or like to be positive or to keep bad things away? keep bad things away okay interesting now there is a local saint or a folk saint that's charlene richard and she was a young girl who died in richard louisiana and she's not been investigated by the vatican or really anyone but that doesn't seem to matter I't stop anybody. Mm-mm. I thought this was great. This is from a Louisiana Folkways article. The belief stories and local devotion to Charlene reflect a basic worldview of the culture of the Cajuns and Creoles in South Louisiana. Though people disagree on whether Charlene is really a saint in times of need, they are quite willing to pray to her just in case she is a saint. This is typical of the practical attitudes of the Cajuns about life in general.
1: I feel like everything was always just in case. Yeah. Like, like you are like, why do you keep the palm?
2: <laughs> just in case. Just in case.
1: Just in case some bad shit comes our way.
2: That's really funny. <laughs> they certainly think of themselves as followers of official Catholicism, but they see no problem or conflict in also availing themselves of these less official beliefs and practices of folk sacraments. <laughs> Now, there's also a local Mary.
1: Our Lady of Tickfaw.
2: That's not made up. in that place isn't made up. That's a real place. Tickfaw. Chew on that.
1: Well, Grand Coteau.
2: There's a miracle. Of course. And you can visit the site. It's beautiful. You should. Oh, my goodness. It's pretty. There's also the Bon Mort Society in Karen Crow, which was founded in 1906, still exists, where you pay a $2 membership fee and then a dollar for every year after that. And when you die, they'll pray for your soul. So sign up when you're old. Well, they started praying for living people too in order to attract some members under 60. Good thinking. (laughs) And then also there is a St. Anne shrine outside of New Orleans that's modeled after the Lord's Grotto. Yes. The most popular St. Anne folk thing I've heard is you pray, St. Anne, St. Anne, bring me a man. And she's supposed to help single women find good husbands.
1: And she's a great example of how these different saints can mean different things to different people there's some great louisiana writers project writings from the 40s about all the different interpretations of her you know some people it's like that to find a man Mm -hmm. some people it's that she can kind of keep a home safe and stable some people if you got a trifling man (laughs) she's gonna do something about it
2: she's gonna throw grits on him (laughs)
1: The point is, that Catholics in Louisiana have no trouble with some good old magical thinking. There's a very material relationship with saints and a very ritualistic worship. There's a very open-mindedness of the people in general.
2: That kind of, you know,
1: doesn't hurt. <laughs> doesn't hurt to pray.
2: Like I think about your grandmother giving you a rooster spar, You know, practicing Catholic.
1: The one that disappeared.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I that don't one.
1: know where it is. Yeah, that one. After she died.
2: But oh, no, you found it.
1: My mom found it.
2: In a drawer with her funeral card.
1: A picture of me and my sister in a nursery.
2: In a completely empty dresser.
1: Yeah. Happy Halloween. That's a true
2: story. But like that your devoutly Catholic grandmother would be like, here, just in case. <laughs> and give that to you in the first place is crazy.
1: But it's interesting because people in New Orleans, you know, will often cite that John Paul II visited with several African Practitioners of these kind of traditional African animistic religions, kind of talking to them and saying that we have some common ground. He said, Nature, exuberant and splendid in this area of forest and lakes, impregnates spirits and hearts with its mystery and orients them spontaneously towards the mystery of He who is the author of life. It's the religious sentiment that animates you and one can say that animates all of your compatriots. Now, Jerry Gandolfo, who owns the Historic Voodoo Museum in New Orleans, said, The church in New Orleans has always been a far distance from the church in Rome. The clergy, consequently, were often as much likely to be converted by the local customs as to do any converting. The big easy attitude that's always pervaded New Orleans has also constituted a uniquely liberal and adaptable church. So you can see where this just syncretism really, really comes into play. New Orleans and South Louisiana. But there's some very, very traditional African elements that do still take place to this day.
2: And chief among these is Grigri.
1: Are you going to put the Grigri on somebody?
2: I'm not gonna. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm liable to make somebody win the lottery. I'm trying to curse them. But Grigri is usually thought of as like, An amulet worn for protection or some other spiritual need. And today it seems like the thinking on Grigri is that it is the stuff in the amulet, not the amulet itself. Although that's questionable as well. Now, the little packet with the Grigri in it can also be called a mojo bag. Catchy. Like
1: Money Waters. Got my mojo working.
2: And for anyone who thought he was about to say like Jim Morrison, ho ho Oh. Now... If you go online and you Google Gregory, you will be presented with several buying opportunities.
1: You are correct.
2: For example. What would you buy? I didn't buy anything. I don't know. I'm going to get my hoodoo from those people. So according to Voodoo Authentica's website and product listing. We went there. We did. They were very nice.
1: We did go on a fact-finding mission for this trip, by the way. <laughs> Excuse to go to New Orleans.
2: <laughs> Do-do-do. We'll have a muffalato, please, and all the answers. So... Mojo bags are made with only the finest herbs, root, essential oil, and other magical ingredients. That's magic with a K, so you know it's real. They are made, blessed, and empowered by authentic New Orleans voodoo practitioners. In the comments section in the checkout form, please tell us your special needs, desires, circumstances, etc. We'll take care of the rest. So don't buy those off the internet unless you need to i guess like that it's it creeps me out like I, it, it just seems like it's such a personal thing what goes in the gree-gree and then you are having somebody make gree and just send it to you and you just think it's gonna be okay
1: well i could tell you in all of my reading uh, there have been male order voodoo services for over a century
2: it makes me nervous still
1: <laughs> you better trust them it's really the important yeah no
2: know, know who's making your mojo free advice Public safety announcement. So, according to a modern practitioner in her hoodoo, voodoo spellbook, Denise Alvarado, grigri is a verb and a noun. I
1: think it's become a verb over time.
2: You can gri somebody. Right. I've always heard you put gri on somebody.
1: Same sentiment. But I
2: guess you can hex somebody or you can put a hex on somebody. Well, yeah, right. And she says it's a complete religio-magical system can to root work and it includes whatever is appropriate to address the given need in the new orleans tradition there's a gree gree for anything and everything i was always taught that gree gree is whatever kind of mixture of herbs and common household ingredients you concoct and whatever words you write or speak in whatever situation arises Gri gree can be a combination of powdered minerals herbs graveyard dust roots bones sacred words seals written on paper with magical ink, it can be used as a powder and thrown in the path of an enemy, or an amulet, or a gree-gree bag, and a doll. Mixed with water and drunk, it is used for magical bath. In the distant past, gree-gree even included lethal powders and poisons. Oh, huh. licking frog, cane toad. Cane- yeah, that's what I
1: said. If someone wrote into us that dogs become addicted to them in <laughs> Australia? <laughs> Do you want to There's so
2: much I want to see about this. What's up with your dog? Oh, mate, he's been licking them toads again. <laughs> in addition to the ingredients that go in, you can add people's like hair or fingernails or bits of their clothing if you want to create contagious magic. It's like It affects this little piece of them and will affect the larger body as well. It can also be used in dolls. In that form, it's sympathetic magic. But whatever it is, it results in some sort of Portable talisman. It's something that you take with you.
1: Yeah, and so we've seen similar things in, like, the Paquettes in Haiti. But it really does have very strong African roots as well. You can still see this in West Africa today. And they're very similar. They're small cloth bags. They can have little objects in them. And they often have writing as well. And check this. They can have verses from the Quran.
2: Interesting.
1: Yeah, and they're actually used as a... Very popular method of birth control there.
2: So Gregory has been in Louisiana since at least 1758.
1: So prior to the Haitian Revolution.
2: And I think that's one reason that it's important for New Orleans to talk about Gregory. Like, I think that's one reason you see it highlighted so much. But in the history de la Louisiane, it's stated that Africans would sometimes get together to make a number of of three or four hundred, and make a kind of sabbath. In his chapter on the treatment of newly enslaved people, LePage advised, they are very superstitious and attached to little toys that they call grigri. It would be improper to take the grigri from them, for they would believe themselves undone if they were stripped of these trinkets. Pause.
1: And that's from 1758.
2: Yes. Think of everything they did do.
1: And that's the thing they let them keep.
2: But that, that just pushes him over the edge. That's either, like, very misguided or... <laughs> I
1: think all of the above. Yeah.
2: So there are court records in New Orleans from the Spanish Judicial Archives in 1773, which shows that there was a case in which several slaves, including a recently arrived Mandinga man, were tried for conspiring to kill their master and slave overseer by means of gri. And there was a slave trader named John Matthews, who gave a description of Grigri in his 1788 voyage to the river Sierra Leone. He says, these are made of goatskin in various shapes and sizes, from the bigness of a shilling to the size of a sheep's heart. I have a good visualization. Why is that your unit of measurement? <laughs> Stuff with some kind of powder and bits of paper, which are written Arabic sentences from the Koran.
1: Say they were even doing it then.
2: And they wear a gree-gri tied around their necks, waist, legs, and arm in such numbers that when a man is properly equipped for the field, the very weight of them with is an exceedingly heavy burden. So it's interesting to
1: look at voodoo in New Orleans because it was and still is viewed as a mainly African-American practice, saying that it only comes from these African roots or it only comes from Haiti. But this ignores the impact on voodoo of its cultural context. Voodoo in New Orleans has always been a dynamic set of practices, with influences from the big mixing pot of New Orleans and the American South. Now, we do have a great record of voodoo from the Louisiana Writers Project in the 1930s and 40s, which was funded through the New Deal.
2: (laughs) Thank you, FDR.
1: Where many people, including writers such as Zora Neale Hurston, went down to New Orleans and recorded first-hand accounts and experienced a lot of these events, and we'll talk about that later. As Cody Roberts, who wrote Voodoo and Power, who you know, right?
2: I believe he was a guest lecturer when I was at LSU.
1: He wrote that the creation of culture in a multicultural nation is most frequently the product of interactions between racial and ethnic groups. Communities create their identities with reference to other communities. Sometimes they view outside communities as others and shape their identities so as to mark themselves distinctly different from the others. And this is the heart of what leads voodoo in New Orleans and South Louisiana as being thought of as other, and a great example to the layperson as to why African Americans should continue to be the other. But these groups continue to include practices from any and everywhere... (laughs) These kind of racialized perceptions of power and spirituality led an interracial population of practitioners to a set of spiritual practices demonized by the association with Africa. Through voodoo, these liminal people were able to gain power, whether that be social, economic, spiritual, or personal. This voodoo continues in the United States as a source of power to these liminal people, and it continues to change and adapt. So during the American domination...
2: Okay, so that's funny, maybe <laughs> we need to take a minute to explain that. We saw a light post the other day when we were in New Orleans, and on one side it said French domination, and then it said Spanish domination, and then it said Confederate domination, and then it said American domination, and it had dates under it. And under the American one, it said 1865
1: to present. I just love that.
2: It's like, no, we're really not like that, y'all. <laughs>
1: But at that time, slaves were arrested for illegal assemblies, especially in conjunction with free people of color and our whites. There are reports from as far back as the 1820s. Now, there was one case in the 1850s where there was a raid of a ceremony where more than 100 people were present, but there were only 18 arrested. Two white women, 15 free women of color, and only one enslaved woman.
2: Now, at this time, there was a high-ranking voodoo practitioner or priestess, depending on who you ask. Everyone has very strong opinions on the subject, called Betsy Toledano, and she actually fought to have voodoo recognized as a religion and, like, kept bringing people to court, like, kept bringing police officers to court in New Orleans in the 1850s. This is a black woman, a black woman in the 1850s in Louisiana bringing people to trial because of this religious persecution it is amazing to me how brave that was
1: right because she knew they were getting away with it though because they were like it's not because of religion
2: it's because you're mixing slaves and free people after 7 p.m. or
1: whatever right exactly it'd be like illegal assembly they're making too much noise there's white people and it's white women and enslaved people together, and that can't happen. That's a big no-no.
2: And so it, there was some interesting power dynamics. Now,
1: interestingly, there was an account recorded after the Civil War that New Orleans voodoo worked to emancipate the slaves and inspired them to serve as, quote, sons of freedom in the United States, similar to the Haitian Revolution. The society has played an important role in the events that have taken place at New Orleans for the past year it was induced to take an indirect but very active part in the war.
2: So, I'm trying to work this into the Lost Cause mythos. They were on the other side. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So, throughout these periods of slavery and immediately after the Civil War, these voodoo practitioners were the most powerful people of African descent in New Orleans. It was very much a matriarchal system where many, many women were in power. And the ultimate mytho-historical progenitor of New Orleans voodoo is none other than Queen Marie Laveau.
2: She is an American folk hero on par with like Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone. Like she is a legend. And the legend probably starts at the end. So this appeared in June of 1881 in the Times-Picayune. Big ol' write-up. And it begins. Death of Marie Laveau. A woman with a wonderful history, almost a century old, carried to the tomb yesterday evening. Those who have passed by the quaint old house on St. Anne between Rampart and Burgundy Streets, with a high, frail-looking fence in the front, over which a tree or two is visible, have, till within the last two years, noticed through the open gateway a decrepit old lady with snow-white hair and a smile of peace and contentment lighting up her golden features. For a few years past, she has been missed from her accustomed place. The feeble old lady lay upon her bed with her daughter and her grandchildren around her, ministering to her wants. On Wednesday, the invalid sank into the sleep, which knows no waking. Those whom she had befriended crowded into the little room where she was exposed in order to obtain a last look at her features smiling even in death, of her who had been so kind to them. At five o'clock yesterday, Marie Laveau was buried in her family tomb in the St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. Her remains were followed to the grave by a large concourse of people, the most preeminent and the most humbled, joining in paying their last respects to the dead. Marie Laveau was born 98 years ago. Her father was a rich planter who was prominent in all public affairs and who served in the legislature of this state. Her mother was Marguerite Henry, and her grandmother was Marguerite Sermon. All were beautiful women of color. The gift of beauty was hereditary in the family, and Marie inherited it to the fullest degree. When she was 25 years old, she was led to the altar by Jacques Parry, a carpenter. This marriage took place at the St. Louis Cathedral, Père Antoine, conducting the service. A year afterwards, Mr. Perry disappeared. And no one to this day is sure what has become of him after waiting a year for his return she married captain christophe glapion the latter was also a very prominent here and served with distinction in the battalion of the men of san domingo with jackson in the war of 1815.
1: so he fought with andrew jackson
2: (laughs) he actually did 15 children were the result of their marriage only one of these is now alive. Captain Glapion died, greatly regretted, on the 26th of June, 1855. Besides being very beautiful, Marie was also very wise. She was skillful in the practice of medicine and was acquainted with the valuable healing qualities of indigenous herbs. She was very successful as a nurse. Wonderful stories being told of her exploits to the sickbed in yellow fever and cholera epidemics. She was always called upon to nurse the sick and always responded promptly. Her skill and knowledge earned her the friendship and approbation of those sufficiently cultivated, but the ignorant attributed her success to unnatural means and held her in constant dread. Not alone to the sick was Marie Laveau a blessing. To help a fellow creature in distress, she considered a priceless privilege. She was born in the house where she died. Her mother lived and died there before her. The unassuming cottage has stood for a century and a half. It was built by the first French settlers of Adobe. Those in trouble had but to come to her, and she would make their cause her own, after undergoing great sacrifice in order to assist them. Besides being charitable, Marie was also very pious, and took delights in strengthening the allegiance of souls to the church. She would sit with the condemned in their last moments, and endeavor to turn the Their last thoughts to Jesus. Whenever a prisoner excited her pity, Marie would labor incessantly to obtain his pardon, or at least a commutation of sentence, and she generally succeeded. A few years ago, before she lost control of her memory, she was rich in interesting reminiscences of the early history of the city. She often spoke of the young American Governor Claiborne and told how his child wife brought with him from Tennessee, died of the yellow fever shortly after his arrival, and with the dead babe upon her bosom, was buried in a corner of the old American cemetery. She spoke sometimes of the strange little man with the wonderful bright eyes, Aaron Burr, who was so polite and so dangerous. She loved to talk of Lafayette, who visited New Orleans over a half century ago. The great Frenchman came to see her at her house and kissed her on the forehead at parting. All in all, Marie Laveau was most wonderful woman, doing good for the sake of doing good alone. She obtained no reward. Ofttimes, meeting with prejudice and loathing, she was nevertheless contented and did not flag in her work. She always had the cause of the people at heart and was with them in all things. During the late rebellion, she proved her loyalty to the South at every opportunity and freely dispensed help to those who suffered in the defense of the lost cause.
1: There it is.
2: (laughs) Her last days were spent surrounded by sacred pictures and other evidence of religion. And when she died, a firm trust in heaven. While God's sunshine plays around the little tomb where her remains are buried by the side of her second husband and her sons and daughters, Marie Laveau's name will not be forgotten in New Orleans. And that's true. The last (laughs) sentence. Yeah. What the hell? I mean, come on. Okay, anyway.
1: Anything missing?
2: <laughs> well, maybe if you're ignorant and attribute her work to supernatural means because you're stupid. But we all know she was just nice and smart and never did anything for any reason other than to help people. And and just, she did good for goodness sakes. Well, no, she did a lot of good. Don't vilify her i'm not but what? i i also know that santa claus was not watching her what and she was not good for goodness sakes she, she was good
1: coal? at good at what she did so it's so interesting that this write-up of marie laveau in the picayin from the time of her death in the 1800s has first of all has no mention of anything to do with voodoo, except for that she had a little root magic, maybe. Like a little root healing, maybe. But also, why the hell would she have this giant write-up in the paper?
2: If she was just some sweet old lady? Sweet old lady. I know lots of sweet old ladies. Times-Picayune does not run columns on sweet old ladies. Especially in 1881, when their pride is obviously still hurt. I read a lot of Times-Picayune stuff when I was looking at the white supremacy monument that was taken down. And they were really on board with that. <laughs> like they were the ones who were spearheading the movement to have the monument put up. The Picky and for her to get this right up, that's very suspicious to it's me. It's
1: very, very odd. It so, feels
2: wrong. All of it feels so wrong.
1: So let's pull up some other obituaries.
2: Let's I love obituaries.
1: So the New York Times obituary. <laughs> From eighteen eighty one
2: Do you think they got a mail order Gris Gris delivery?
1: They must have, because they report Maria Laveau, the Queen of the Voodoos, died last Wednesday at the advanced age of 98 years.
2: So in New York, so far away, so very far away from New Orleans, they are aware that she was the Queen of the Voodoos, but maybe they're just ignorant. It's ignorant. (laughs) No.
1: Not to the superstitious Creoles, Marie appeared as a dealer in the black arts and a person to be dreaded and avoided. Strange stories were told of the rites performed by the sect of which Marie was the acknowledged sovereign. Many old residents asserted that on Saint John's Night, the twenty-fourth of June, the Voodoo clan had been seen in deserted places, joining in wild, weird dances. All the participants in which were perfectly nude.
2: So that's a weird lead. So that we have to put that they're nude. Like in the well, yeah, it's okay, titillating.
1: The voodoos were thought to be invested with supernatural powers, and men sought them to find means to be rid of their enemies, while others asked for love powders to instill affection into the bosoms of their unwilling or unsuspecting sweethearts. Whether there was any such sect and whether Marie was ever its queen, her life was one to render such a belief possible.
2: If it's just a story, it's a damn good story.
1: <laughs> they sign a lot of the things that are in the Pickeian obituary, which I think that they were like, you left some stuff out. <laughs> Let's include it. See, they mention that she's very good at kind of folk remedies and knowing about kind of root magic and root work, but also that she was endowed with more than the usual share of common sense and her advice was times really valuable and her penetration remarkable. Adding to these qualities the gift of great beauty, no wonder that she possessed a large influence in her youth and attracted the attention of Louisiana's greatest men and most distinguished visitors. She was the creature of that peculiar state of society in which there was no marrying or giving in marriage. Yet, they were not like the angels in heaven. Damn. (laughs) Coming in daily contact with the best-informed man of that period and possessing a remarkably retentive memory, it's no wonder that she acquired a large store of valuable information. She was by no means backward in delivering her opinions, and as her predictions nearly always came true and the course she suggested generally proved the wisest. Marie soon possessed a larger clientele than the most astute and far-seeing legal counselor, and it was not alone for advice that men and women of all conditions called on her. People were not all as enlightened and unprejudiced as they are now, and failing to understand how she arrived at her conclusions, they can imagine no better source than voodooism. At first she encouraged this idea and delighted to cover her actions with an air of mystery, Nurses would frighten their charges into silence by the mention of the name of the voodoo queen, and the children thus grew up in fear of her. Many older people had more real cause to dread Marie. There were very few secrets of any nature which she did not know. Wherever there was a skeleton in the family closet, Marie held the key.
2: Okay, I want that in my obituary. I want it in my, like, life goals.
1: She knew of many proud homes where a whisper concerning the taint of colored blood would have spread consternation. But she was silent and did not even extort money for not overthrowing their standing in society.
2: I am required to write as the gree bag has notified me.
1: (laughs) She was often placed on the stand to testify concerning such matters, but no threat of imprisonment could force her to unseal her lips. It was only when the family had become haughty and arrogant and were cruel and brutal to their dependents that she told all she knew. And her disclosures brought terrible disgrace upon those who had called forth her wrath. You don't want that one
2: in your aperture. I'll just take the whole thing. It's pretty good.
1: The secrets of her life, however, could only be obtained from the old lady herself. But she would never tell the smallest part of what she knew. And now her lips are closed forever. And as she could neither read nor write, not a scrap is left to chronicle the events of her
2: exciting life. We found the scraps. We found them. There's, there really
1: are only AV scraps.
2: Yes, and they are hard fought and hard won. But what do we know? First of all, was Marie Laveau a real person? Yeah. We know that Marie did die in her Saint Anne Street cottage,
1: which we visited. We did. Or this side of it.
2: And we know that took place on June fifteenth of eighteen eighty-one. And we know that she was buried in the crypt of Widow Paris, a Widow Paris beg pardon, in St. Louis number 1.
1: Which is the famous or infamous city of the dead on Basin Street in New Orleans.
2: Every other fact is basically a subtle blend of conjecture and myth, kind of laid over some raggedy bones of record.
1: I know. I always heard that she was a free, beautiful Creole woman.
2: Yes, that's true. But you will also hear other things. What else? So some people have written that she was enslaved and she married a fellow slave. That's wrong. That's very rare. That's people who are just guessing. And then... Why not? (laughs) Yeah. That, maybe. Why not? They will also conjecture that she was a slave who had children with the person who held her in slavery.
1: Now, a lot of people said that she was in a placage marriage, which we talked about.
2: Or relationship, wasn't often right. a marriage. And a lot of people said that she married another Creole of color. Other people said she married into French nobility.
1: So which one's true?
2: Yeah, not all of them.
1: Oh, okay.
2: mean <laughs> so, I mean,
1: I know it said so that she married two different people.
2: Right. So we're going to hit two of those bases. But let's start way back. Her great-grandmother would have been most likely brought from Africa. Okay. And there is some conjecture that she would have been from Senegal. I find this to be very thin. And she was held in slavery by Henry Rock, who was also known as Belair. And she did have children with a man named Jean Belair. It seems to have been another man held in slavery by Belair. And then she had Catherine Henry, who was actually very important and kind of Marie's maternal figure. That's her grandmother. And she had children who were classified as mulatta, meaning that they were half black and half white. And most people think that the father of her children was actually Belair. Okay. And the reason that a lot of people think that is because she took the name Catherine Henry when she was finally freed from enslavement. And Henry is an unusual name in Louisiana because it's the Anglo version of Henry. And that was Belair's first name. Most of the time, it would have been only oh, had to make a face when you say it.
1: So she did eventually get her freedom.
2: Yes, and she became a merchantess, and she owned her own business, and eventually bought the property on Saint Anne Street and commissioned a cottage there. So we're already at like lie number two because they said Marguerite Sermond was her grandmother.
1: That was a lie or misinformation. Yeah, it was
2: misinformation, and then they said that it was built by. French settlers in the earliest days of the colonial period. And it was actually built by her. Yeah, it was. So by the time she was 45, she's a mother of four, Catholic and good standing, businesswoman, landowner, rocking it. Catherine Henry's pretty impressive. And then her mother was actually born into slavery as well and eventually was also freed. She entered into a package relationship with Henri de Arcantal, and he was a well-to-do French Creole who served as chief official of accounting for the Office of Army and Royal Household. And so many people conjecture that this was Marie's father, but that is not the case.
1: Really? Well, who is her father?
2: Charles Laveau.
1: Well, that makes sense with the last name.
2: (laughs) Yes, but his Laveau has an X, and Marie's does not. So the X
1: is a very Louisiana thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And the U is the traditional French spelling of any word.
2: Why is the X there in Louisiana?
1: People think it may be due to the high rate of illiteracy among the French, um, especially the French Cajuns, and that they would often mark their name with an X. As we saw when we were reading through old documents, they would write the X, and then they would write the person's name in front of it.
2: Oh my God, that's so interesting. And then they would
1: write above it, this is the mark of.
2: I've seen this. And
1: that's where the X comes from. Ha. Huh.
2: Magic. Magic. I love it. So, Charles Laveau did have an ex, and he was also a free man of color. He's listed as a mulatto. And because his mother, Marie Laveau with an X, was listed as black, we can assume that he had a white father.
1: Safe assumption.
2: And some people think that his father was Charles Laveau Trudeau, which rhymes and is fun That's to say.
1: Fine. So, we have the father and mother of Marie Laveau. So, she is born. And we have her baptismal records.
2: This is where things get hairy.
1: This is it, right here at the very beginning.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, as far as proving that Marie Laveau is a real person and who she was. So, in addition to having a child as a result of their liaison, Charles and Marguerite both had children and families of their own separately with other people.
1: So, as the New York Times said, they were not angels.
2: They were not angels, but... They liked angels, and they liked the Virgin Mary, and so they named all of their daughters Marie. So by the time we get to Marie, she also, in the same generation, has two sisters named Marie.
1: With different middle names?
2: Yes. So we have to start working out which one is is the Marie, is our Marie. And so we come to the record of her baptism. If you look through the archives of... St. Louis Cathedral, which are all handwritten in very ornate calligraphy, some of them, and some of them are written in chicken scratch. Eventually, in one of the books, you will come to baptismal record number 320 for infant Marie.
1: No surname. No. Does it say her race? Yes. Of course it does.
2: Yes, because that's what matters. Mulatris Libre.
1: So a free person of mixed race.
2: Yes. And it's noted that she is baptized by Père Antoine. Who
1: married her.
2: Yes. She was baptized on September 16th and that she had been born six days earlier in 1801.
1: Okay. So what information from the baptismal record has us thinking that this is Marie Laveau?
2: Well, it does list her mother as Marguerite. Okay. Mulatris Libre. Okay. And it also says that a man named Jose Joaquin Velasquez, this is during the Spanish period. All of the names are actually the Spanish version. So it's mother Margarita, but he was listed as the Godfather and he was known to be a man affiliated with, with the church that would often stand as Godfather to people who were either enslaved at the time or had been slaves previously and were now free. So that, indicates that this woman had at one point been held in slavery. And then the grandmother's name is listed as Caterina, which is the Spanish version of Catherine, with no surname. And it's noted that she is a black woman. And it's most likely the grandmother, Catherine Henry, standing as godmother. And we know this because Marie was a very common first name, so it was not out of the question for women to use their middle names. And later in life, Marie did use the m- name Catherine on some of her official documents.
1: Oh, well, that's a twisty-turvy way to prove it. Right. And Makes
2: sense. Often, the middle name was taken after the godmother, so that further substantiates the record. Also, throughout her lifetime, this is the date that she would use as her birthday. Whatever the Times-Picayune and the New York Times may have to say.
1: (laughs) So, she was born a free person of color, technically. She was a Creole, so she was a mixed race. So, that part of the story... True. Yes. Now, say is that she grew up and she couldn't read or write. She was illiterate.
2: Okay. So I have some interesting thoughts on that. That's very unusual. Why is that? Not at the time. But Charles Laveau did actually pay to send all of his legitimate children to school and they were all literate. And he formally recognized Marie later in her life and actually... Paid a dowry or gave her a wedding gift of a lot on a uh, Ruta Moore and Maroney. It was obvious that he was willing to finance her. You know, like kind of bankroller. So I find it really interesting that she did not attend school.
1: I think it's just part of the mythos.
2: Well, she signed with an ex. She did. So if she could read and write, she didn't tell anybody about it. <laughs> okay, okay. But who knows? So eventually, the first time we see the name Marie Laveau in record is when she gets married. Jacques Paris. Jacques Paris.
1: So this is the carpenter that she married. They just like up and vanished.
2: Okay, that's that's all actually true. They got the age wrong and they got the duration of her marriage wrong. She was under the age of majority when she married on August 4th of 1819. So she would have been just shy of 18. Now Jacques, this is interesting is actually listed as a free quadroon native of San Dominique.
1: So quadroon would be someone that is a quarter buck.
2: Right. We're going to learn a lot of new racist terminology. Please do not use it on the internet. I will hunt you down.
1: This is not troll fodder.
2: Right. But he's Haitian as well.
1: That's interesting.
2: Which seems to be maybe key.
1: Interesting at the
2: least. Right. And in this document, Charles Lebeau, because of a spelling error, is listed as her father on her marriage certificate. So that further substantiates that idea. And they were married by Père Antoine. Now, you'll always hear, it's very common knowledge, I'm doing scary quotes here, that they never had any children. But they did have two daughters, but they don't appear anywhere except in the birth records. They disappear as well.
1: Could they have died?
2: Yeah, very easily. And so could Jacques, actually. That's not that crazy.
1: Well, you know, they mentioned that she nursed during the yellow fever. And there was a massive yellow fever outbreak in New Orleans this time, one of the worst ever. Right. And yellow fever is akin to Ebola.
2: Whew. Nothing it, has ever been compared favorably to Ebola, yeah, I it's guess. A,
1: another hemorrhagic fever, interestingly.
2: No. <laughs> okay, come on. Trying to
1: get into some racist medicine. People used to think that the enslaved people were immune to it. This, this yellow fever outbreak disproved that theory.
2: I would have been okay with them being immune to it.
1: <laughs> no, but it's one more thing. Is goes, oh, wait, maybe they're people.
2: Oh, <laughs> I see.
1: Now, so he eventually disappeared, and their children, too, from the records. So possibly dying of yellow fever or some other cause.
2: Right, because records were not kept. So many people were dying that the records are very, very spotty. And he would have been buried in like an unmarked grave, like mass grave.
1: So she did become a widow at a very early age. Like
2: 23, I think. And she does later meet Christophe Glapion, who is listed as Haitian or described as Haitian in her write-up.
1: This is the guy that fought with Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans.
2: He actually did. Really? Yeah, that's not made up. That's
1: kind of cool. So Christophe Glapion.
2: His full name was Louis Christophe Dominique, Dominique de Glapion, because fun.
1: So is this that part where she married a rich, white, French plantation owner,
2: uh, His He was descended from rich, white, French plantation owners. Um, his grandfather was actually French nobility. He was a member of the Order of St. Louis. Oh, wow. And they owned a big plantation in St. John the Baptist Parish. So was he white? He was white, white. Oh, okay. He was not mixed. You'll hear that he was a lot, but he's not.
1: So is this that kind of placage situation that comes into play?
2: It is and it's not. They entered into a decades-long domestic partnership. They never married. I don't know if it was because they weren't allowed to because Jacques might still be alive or the race thing or what. But they never married. But they were cool with that. And she was not a young teenage girl, which is normally the kind of woman that would have been placed and become a place-y. Okay. She was a widow, and she'd previously had two children. And Christophe was a bachelor, and he never took a, quote, proper French wife.
1: Oh, uh, So that would be a reason. That would be the why it's not a true, like, placage.
2: Normally, it's just like, sow your oats until you're bored, and then when we import some more women, go get one. And they socialized with, bo- with people on both sides of the color line. It wasn't like he had his social circle and she had hers. They were actively involved with all manner of people in New Orleans.
1: And that is why it's important that she was Creole. Because she was able to exist in this kind of liminal state. Mm-hmm. She was able to walk that line.
2: Another reason that it's not just like typical placage relationship is because he did recognize his children in all of the baptismal documents and like, they took his name and they cohabitated. Like she was not kept in a little cottage away from him. Like they lived in the house on St. Anne. Really? Now you also see more misinformation that's always around is the 15 children thing. That's a lot. There are records for seven. Okay. And two survived till adulthood. And that's Marie Eucharist or Marie Heloise, or Marie Eloise, or Marie Apricius, or Marie Eloisa.
1: Depending on who is writing the document.
2: Right. And then there's Marie Philomel, or Philomine.
1: And they all went with Glapion. Yes. So do we have any other records of Marie Laveau's existence?
2: Okay. There was a case in 1850 that was written up in the papers. In order to really talk about it, we've got to go back to 1820.
1: That's 30 years before.
2: Right. So in an early article titled... Idolatry and quackery, fair and balanced. Of course, in the Louisiana Gazette in 1820, several people are arrested, and this includes white people, free people of color, and enslavement and women. And they're holding illegal nighttime meetings, which is like we said, favorite bust. And they were found in a house in Faubourg Tremay, which was being quote used as a temple for certain occult practices and idolatrous worship of an African deity called Voodoo. Oh no. It is said that many slaves and some free people repaired there of nights to practice superstitious and idolatrous rites, to dance, carols, etc. Among the ritual objects seized by the police was an image of a woman whose lower extremities resembled that of a snake. A snake. I think it's probably La Serene, but eh. who knows? And then we see another representational female figure discovered at a voodoo ceremony in eighteen twenty-two. A reporter who went by Professor D, rest blacked out because he needed to remain anonymous, um, attended a St. John's Eve ceremony led by Senaté de Day, an early, early voodoo queen, noted a makeshift altar, at the center of which was a cypress sapling, on which there was a, quote, black doll with a dress variegated by cabalistic signs and emblems and a necklace of the vertebrae of snakes around her neck
1: oh i bet some people were clutching their pearls reading that
2: Mm-hmm we've seen this figure emerge just an image of a woman like a fish we've seen the black doll and then we get to this account of marie first time july 2nd 1850 marie laveau files a complaint and it's written up in the picayune marie laveau Otherwise, Widow Paris, free woman of color, head of the Voodoo Women, yesterday appeared before Recorder Sesnio and charged Watchman Obrero of having, by fraud, come into possession of a statue of a virgin worth $50.
1: She was filing a complaint. Give me my stuff back.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. So the case was heard on August 10th, and it was duly written up in the Daily Delta. About to get offensive. Africa's daughters of every age, every shape, and every color, from bright yellow to sooty black. Oh, you did it, didn't you? Mm Mm-hmm. Came to hear the case. The article was titled The Virgin of the Voodoos and referred to the artifact as a, quote, quaintly carved figure resembling something between a centaur and an Egyptian mummy. That doesn't even make sense. Nope. So maybe this is tied to the... Woman with lower extremities of a snake because of the centaur thing. I
1: know. Because I was originally thought it was just, you know.
2: A Mary. A Mary. I did it too. It was altered.
1: Or a centaur, whatever.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so police held on to the statue until it was announced that it would be restored to those who worshiped at its shrine, which is nice for the time. Sure. Okay. For payment of $8.50 in court costs.
1: That's a lot of money.
2: Curiously, the statue was not returned to Marie who had filed the complaint. A young quadroon was was the first to present the ransom. Then another, then another, and still another of the same colored sisterhood came and presented the stipulated sum, aye, it's double, and claimed the voodoo virgin. In the end, the holder of the virgin, meaning the first to pay, was pronounced to have the right to keep it. So legend says that this was Marie II coming to get the statue. Oh,
1: uh, we'll get to her.
2: Mm-hmm. And then some people said it was a rival priestess who was made up by Robert Talent. Yeah, uh, well, we'll get there too. <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting thing about this is we see Marie mentioned in the paper as the head of the Voodoo Women. Very early on. It's not just attached after her death. This is not conjecture out of whole cloth. And I find it interesting that this figure keeps showing up in these accounts because it may point to like a long-standing tradition in New Orleans. Something I
1: was kind of passed down. And if it's
2: not the exact same artifact, icon, if it's similar, it points to a consistency.
1: Yes. Very interesting. So you know, I brought up that, you know, she was a Creole woman and why that was an important aspect of her story. And there is a famous painting of her that is in the Cabildo. Mm-hmm. One of the Louisiana State Museums, right next to St. Louis Cathedral in the French Quarter. Outside with Andrew Jackson watching on.
2: He's not watching anything. He's riding his horse.
1: <laughs> He's watching. Yeah, he is. <laughs> that is always said to be her and is in every book and website and anything you look up. And it's interesting because it probably isn't her. Right. Her daughter, Philomel, stated that her mother never sat for a portrait never had a photo taken and that painting by George Catlin who's a fantastic artist
2: oh my god
1: we saw one of his exhibits in DC of his Native American portraits in there awesome, google it, pause
2: no like really, go google it it's awesome Like google image search your heart out honey
1: but the real portrait is actually lost many people believe the former head of the Louisiana Historical Society just you know, up and absconded with it Because it's Louisiana. But it was probably cursed or something. Who knows? <laughs> So what's there now is actually a copy of it.
2: But it was an early copy, so it really is old. Okay. If that helps, but whatever.
1: So we've established some of her life facts and we're starting to get into some of the proof that she was head of the voodoos.
2: That's ignorant. <laughs> okay.
1: But but was she the voodoo queen? Way down yonder in New Orleans.
2: Yes. Yes, she was. Like, that's so... It's true. It's just true. I'm sorry, Picayune. So, as you said, many people were interviewed for the Louisiana Writers Project. And many of those people talked about Marie Laveau, Queen of the Voodoos.
1: Do you have some choice stories?
2: I do. So, did she have altars in her home? That's something you always hear. Yes, she did. Marie Laveau had so many candles burning, I don't see that, how, how that house never caught fire. She had all kinds of saints' pictures and flowers on the altar. She had a big statue of St. Anthony. What I love about that is what the quote originally said is she had a big St. Anthony, and somebody went in and put in brackets, statue of.
1: <laughs> it's like, no, 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 not a real one.
2: And she would turn him upside down in his head on the yard when she had work to perform. And her granddaughter would come and get me and say, come see, my grandma got St. Anthony on his head. And Marie Laveau would put us children out and lock the gate.
1: So a lot of these recounts are from people that were kind of younger, witnessing it or going with their family to the ceremonies.
2: I love that. I can hear my friends saying, come see, my grandma's got St. Anthony on his head. (laughs) Charles Raphael, who was born in 1868, described the altar in the front room. And he said the one in the front room was for good work. It was used for good luck charms and money making charms and husband holding charms. And she had a statue of Saint Peter and Saint Marum, who is a colored saint,
1: probably Saint Martin de Porres. Yeah. yeah.
2: He says that's not the only altar she had. Uh oh. He said she had one in her back room, and that altar was for bad work. <laughs> and there she made charms to kill or drive away or break up love affairs or to spread confusion. And it had on it a bear, a lion, a tiger, and a wolf.
1: So a lot of these stories you do have to take with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is that there are so many.
2: And so many consistencies. Yes. Think of it as a mosaic that you have to kind of step back from.
1: With the grain of salt, there's probably a grain of truth.
2: We should put that on a t-shirt. Uh, yeah, it's like
1: our <laughs> new motto.
2: So... She also held ceremonies that were called layouts or parterres. And that is a practice where she would arrange offerings of herbs, food, liquor, flowers, candles, and coins on a white cloth on the ground or the floor. And she worked with a group of support staff, if you will, that she called co-workers who aided her in her work. And there was always music, usually a group of younger singers like children and A man playing the accordion, which seems to be key. So an informant relates. A feast was spread for the spirits on a white tablecloth laid on the floor. Certain foods were always present. Congri, apples, oranges, and red peppers. What's congri? It
1: it would be uh, what people in the rest of the South call Hoppin' John. It's like peas and rice.
2: (laughs) Oh, Hoppin' John I got. Candles were lighted and placed on the four corners of the room, and the colors depended on the cause for which the ceremony was given. They were usually red, blue, green, or brown. Never white. And an old man named Zizi played the accordion for the singers. And then another informant says, The color of Marie Laveau's dress depended on the work she was doing. Brown was for bad work. White and blue were for good work. Her co-workers wore the same color dress. They were all barefoot. And Zizi played the accordion. There was a big chair, like they used to have in church for the bishop. And Marie sat in it at the opening of the meeting. She would tell people to ask for what they want and then sprinkle them with rum and start the dances. I have seen those men turn women over like a top. They had large handkerchiefs that they would put around the women's waist and they would shake. There were more white people in the meetings than colored. The meetings lasted from 7 to 9 o'clock and they would have things to eat and drink. Marie is known to have had dealings with, at least, or maybe worked with, a man named Dr. Jim. And Dr. Jim Alexander was a voodoo doctor who had been born in Mississippi and originally went by the name of Charles LaFontaine, but for whatever reason, needed an alias. And He was described by one Louisiana writer's project informant, Nathan Hobley, as fine-looking, very straight, about three-quarters Indian, and the rest colored. He was powerful in physique and would take a person who needed treatment onto his back, dance the bambula and sing, and then finally put the person down, cured. Teresa Cavanaugh added, that he used to dance with fire on his head and red-hot coals and reptiles writhing all over his body. And Dr. Jim was described by a Yankee newspaper run at one of his ceremonies, which took place at a small frame house just beyond Congo Square. Dr. Alexander's building was at 319 Orleans, and that would fit. The doctor was described by this man as middle-aged, good-looking mulatta. And then he said the interracial congregation consisted of coal black porters and stevedores and fat cooks and slender chambermaids, yellow girls and comely quadroons, among them several white people. In the large front room was an altar with a statue of the Virgin Mary flanked by candles, plates of fruit, dishes of sugar, powdered root and bottles of brandy. He concluded nothing indecent occurred in word or gesture, but it was so wild and bizarre that one might, Easily imagine he was in Africa or in hell.
1: Besides the hell part, <laughs> it's a really good description. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like these are kind of wild dances. or something you would never see in other parts of the city. But people from all over the city, from every rank, file, and class, and color, were coming to these ceremonies. It was becoming an integral part of the fabric of the city.
2: I think that's very true, and you start to see early syncretism mentioned by the same informants. Josephine McDuffie, who is a little older than most of the people who were interviewed, explained that Papa Limba was supposed to be St. Peter, Libra, and Mary Washington, who said she had trained under Marie Laveau, remembered a song that was sung at the weekly ceremonies. St. Peter, St. Peter, open the door, I'm calling you, come to me, St. Peter, St. Peter, open the door. And she went on to explain that St. Peter was called Labah. Papa Labah. And St. Michael was Daniel Blanc. Daniel Blanc's interesting because it was originally Danny Blanc, which was Dumbala.
1: Which is a white snake.
2: But somehow it became a first and last name and more human. Very, very interesting how that happened. And she says Yansu was St. Anthony. And then she also said there was another spirit called Ozencare, but she couldn't remember who that saint was.
1: So one thing you keep reading about if you read about Marie Laveau and you read about these voodoo ceremonies is that they would have these huge wild orgies on the shores of Lake Pontchartrain on St. John's Eve.
2: Have you been reading Robert Talon again? I read it when I was a kid.
1: So we keep mentioning Robert Talon and just (laughs) to clear it up, he was one of the Louisiana Writers Project authors. And he took a lot of liberties, <laughs>
2: to say the least. But the thing about it is, like, he didn't come up with like a creative work. He came out with something that was like, "This is history."
1: Right, and he amalgamated things and he kind of switched things up. And he may
2: have made up some informal. made some things more
1: interesting. And so, when you go to New Orleans and you go in the tourist shop, this 1940s book, "Voodoo in New Orleans" by Robert Talent is still for sale and it is extremely inaccurate
2: but Do entertaining not buy it or take it with all the grains of salt
1: all the salt make a circle of salt around it <laughs> get your gree-gree and read it knowing it's kind of bullshit if you really want to read something
2: that's kind of bullshit?
1: No, that's real. That's the most authentic of the writing from that time. So you still have to take it with a little salt. It's Zora Neale Hurston's book.
2: You should just read Zora Neale Hurston anyway. She was a
1: badass Yeah, bitch. but who cares about their eyes were watching God. Get rid of mules and men.
2: <laughs> oh, they're all great. But her tombstone, another I'm in Supreme Envy. Basically, I've just been finding women's tombstones and obituaries that I want to steal. It says, Genius of the South.
1: Damn right. So these orgies.
2: So about the orgies. Tell me about
1: the orgies. Because I read this book when I was
2: 15. You're like, tell me about the orgies, Robert. (laughs) Tell me. Which is exactly why it's in the book. So St. John's Eve is the time when there would be big public-ish voodoo ceremonies in New Orleans. And by the 1870s, thousands of outsiders were going to go see the orgies they wanted to, they were like you jacob they wanted to know about those orgies
1: i was like 15 14 <laughs> i was even
2: younger <laughs> so catherine Dillon, who worked with the louisiana writers project and put together a manuscript called voodoo which was never published was invited to the lakeshore festivities Included reporters, police officials, swells of the sporting population, and the racially mixed politicians of the time. For Madame Laveau catered to the Knights of the Carpet Bag. Nice. (laughs) So it was a seven-mile trip from New Orleans to the bayou, or to Spanish Fort, and you could take Smokey Mary. What's that? It's the Pontchartrain Railroad.
0: Oh, okay. okay. And
2: a lot of people did. They had to add extra cars on St. John's Eve. Nice. People also went up the Carondelet Canal. You could go by boat, look, get your little P-Row. Or you could take the Oyster Shell Road up from Esplanade and run along Bayou St. John by private conveyance, which is the, just the most New Orleans phrase I've All ever this, heard. Like, of
1: directions. <laughs> we'll, we'll look shy. <laughs> <laughs> Look, like you could take the Oyster Shell Road or you can go take the Smoke and Mary, but that's gonna cost you like fifty cents.
2: You don't wanna be in Dan either. <laughs> or you know, you could just get in your Piro and go off to Coronda Lake I know.
1: Yeah, it's free.
2: <laughs> what you mean you don't got a puro?
1: Good <laughs> borrow, my piro. Take my piro.
2: Bring it back. I
1: gotta go fishing tomorrow.
2: <laughs> so the press accounts apparently experienced one version of St. John's Eve. Well, the informants seem to have perhaps experienced something else. So in the 1890s, there was this article that was like St. John's Eve as it was. How things used to be back in the good old days, 50 years ago. So this is an account of an 1840 ceremony written up in the 1890s in the Picayune. And it was already like very nostalgic. So an unnamed queen, probably meant to be Marie, is said... To have been there on that saint john's eve and she was tall and beautiful and commanding in appearance old age had not yet set its seal upon her she could easily imagine the magnetic sway which her powerful mind held for so many years over the members of her order the queen bowed before the serpent and tapping three times upon the ground summoned the powers of darkness to her assistance then she rose and recited in a slow, impressive manner the Apostles' Creed and Hail Mary, to which the voodoo serviteers responded devoutly. So yeah, we address the snake, we knock, we call the powers of darkness, and then we just, you know, do some Hail Marys and our father. Whatever. Mishmash. However, the accounts that were actually kind of contemporaneously recorded were a little less glowing in their praise.
1: Oh, I can't believe
2: These were mainly written up during the Reconstruction era or in the Pearl Clutchin lead up to the Civil War. And Carolyn Long, who has written extensively about Marie LeVay and provided a very good historical reading of her records, said, During the Reconstruction era, between 1863 and 1877... In continuing into the Jim Crow years of the 1880s and 1890s, the conservative white-owned New Orleans newspaper, particularly the Union Times, made every effort to ridicule people of African descent. Voodoo was exploited as proof that blacks were ignorant, superstitious, and unworthy of full citizenship.
1: This is where the orgy thing comes in. hmm They're just savages.
2: Much of the journalistic recording about St. John's Eve really likes the orgy stories.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I've read it like in every single thing I've read for this episode. Orgy, 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 orgy. It's like everyone's favorite words. Like, they get an extra dollar for every time they put orgy in the article. In 1870? Yeah. I know. It definitely sold more papers.
2: Long says, but occasionally they contain descriptions that, although imperfectly understood by their writers, are surprisingly accurate which I just love her for. So there was an account printed on July 5th of 1869, which said that that season was marked by a coronation of a new voodoo queen in the place of the celebrated Marie Laveau, who has held the office for a quarter of a century and is now superannuated in her 70th year. But in 1870, there was an account that said Marie Laveau Eliza Nico and Euphrasie had all been seen at the St. John's Eve ceremony in all their queenly glory. And then in 1872, there was this write-up. The arrival of a hundred people was followed by a skiff, carrying the voodoo queen, Marie Laveau. She was hailed with hurrahs. Marie reportedly led the congregation in a Creole song. Mademoiselle Marie Chauffée Sa, or Make It Hot. A fire was built on which every participant furnished a piece of wood making a wish as they threw them on and over the fire was placed a boiling cauldron into which was put salt black pepper and a black snake cut into three pieces a cat a black rooster and some colored powders it's a lot of thing in one
1: pot <laughs> mhm
2: the writer noted that the contents of the cauldron were not eaten but saved for the next year at midnight, everyone undressed and plunged into the lake. Afterwards, there was singing and dancing, followed by a feast of gumbo and jambalaya. At the end, they all joined hands around the queen, and she preached a sermon, at the close of which all knelt to pray and receive her benediction. And then there was a chorus of C'est l'amour, oui, mamma, c'est l'amour. It's love, yes, mamma, it's love. During which day began to break, the queen said, Here is day. We must welcome it with song and all go home. So we have this really unusually like glowy thing. I mean, we do have to mention that they were naked. Orgies. But then the next report, the next year, says that Marie is absent. Everyone's looking for her. She's not there. Mm. And Mama Caroline has taken her place and that she started out conducting the ceremony in the nude just from the get go. And then in future years, it appears to have turned into a pretty lucrative little enterprise. It's reported that two policemen called Metropolitans guarded the entrance to the barroom and collected admission fees. And there, the reporter witnessed a score of frail ones, which is a, apparently a code word for prostitutes. Who knew that? With members of the sporting fraternity and men ranked among the young and giddy, swirling in a maze of waltz. A majority of the female participants were white, with reputations. Candor compels us to admit, not altogether stainless. Oh, my. Wait,
1: ballroom? I thought we were on the bayou.
2: Barroom.
1: Barroom?
2: Yes. So, Spanish Fort was built up into, like, a bright little resort town. Oh. Like, it had all kinds of pretty landings and gazebos and hotels and... Oh, is so
1: that not out in the wilderness.
2: <laughs> um, Some of it was out in the wilderness, but they eventually moved it closer to the train tracks so they'd get more people's money. Oh, Because nice. they were smart.
1: <laughs> That's right.
2: Now, Louisiana Writers Project informants have different memories and opinions and things, and some of my favorite accounts are in the St. John's Eve section of, of narratives. So Mr. Felix apparently attended a rather chaste version of the St. John's Eve ceremonies, He said that the service began with Roman Catholic prayers. Everybody would kneel before an altar and rap on the ground three times. One, two, three. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. After that, we would sing in Creole. And the leader would begin with praise of St. John. It was just like a mass a regular church. But then... (laughs)
1: But then...
2: One man would have two women on each side of him. They would put metal rings on their knees that would jingle and rattle. They would first turn one woman around and then turn the other. And after the dance, everybody would bow down on their knees and say, Our Father, of course, we would all stay afterwards and eat and drink and pass a good time. There was chicken, cakes, and liquor. Also red beans and rice to eat.
1: Now, one great informant, old Pops.
2: He would only give his name as Pops.
1: <laughs> he initially said he was no hoodoo and he wasn't going to tell him anything. Nothing. Nothing. And then he was like, well, <laughs> he sipped his iced tea, started rocking in his chair.
2: We've all had this grandpa moment, dude.
1: We've all had this. Yeah, when I was a young rascal back in them days.
2: <laughs> we are reading this verbatim. We are not embellishing this. So
1: you remember the St. John's Eve ceremonies when they were held back on a barge on Lake Pontchartrain around 1875 when he was 16 years old? There were all kinds of saint statues on the barge and an altar fixed up with flowers and things. There was plenty of food, cake, champagne, and liquor. Marie Laveau sure did spend a lot of money. It was just like Mardi Gras. She was dressed in a long purple dress with some kind of rope around her waist, and she wore low shoes with no strings. The women co-workers wore purple dresses too, and the men wore white and purple and carried lighted candles. They all danced some kind of hula dance. Boy, that was a mess. <laughs> And before the thing broke up, she would disappear. They say she walked across the water.
2: There were two informants named Joseph Alfred and Eugene Fritz, who'd also attended the ceremonies. And they were sure to say that the women there, who were black and white, wore all different color dresses. And they were low cut in the front and the back and only reached the knees. And there was nothing underneath. Oh no. (laughs) They danced until they went wild. Ree stood in the middle and gave directions like a drum major. She started all the movements and kept the time and danced along with everybody. The people got so hot they would jump off the barge. Skiffs and boats would pick them up. And then there was a fisherman named John Smith who had been a lifelong resident of Spanish Fort, the little town. And he was one of the few white people who were interviewed for Louisiana Writers Project. And the events that he's talking about probably happened between 1882 and 1884. And he describes this way the lake was humming with people there were special trains out there on st john's eve milk wagons carriages all kinds of things was lined up for miles on the lake but they couldn't see nothing a lot of people came out here to bathe all the bathhouses were rented and they stayed till about four o'clock in the morning marie Laveau had all the sports and newspaper men come out she died when i was about 16. No one came to her place after she died. There was no more dances. The police stopped all that.
1: So they have all these varying reports of the different ceremonies. They were naked or not, they're orgies or not. Well, no. There were orgies. Definitely. Definitely orgies. Definitely. Definitely we don't want to kill
2: New New Orleans tourism. We better, you know, do our part. <laughs> so, you
1: know, you see they're starting to use this kind of language to build it up as this very negative reason. Like like the writer was saying that it was used to make them the other. as a good excuse. And also to to knock down their character as well. You know, you start to see the orgies and then they start to get linked to prostitution.
2: Not wearing nothing underneath.
1: <laughs> Crazy hula dance.
2: And there's this really weird part of Marie's legend that says she was a procurus. A madame and there might be some evidence for that in Louisiana Writers Project, but it's...
1: No, I mean, you can't say Louisiana Writers Project is evidence of anything.
2: <laughs> There's evidence that people thought that for a long time. That's more what it is. So Mary Washington and Marie Brown both kind of back this up. Mary Washington, who was one of Marie's followers, said, she had all kinds of ways to make money. If a fellow wanted a quadrant gal, she'd get him one. Marie Brown never said anything, a single nice word about Marie Laveau
1: that's the point I was making <laughs>
2: yeah and when they asked her about this she said that she devil that hellcat." of course I remember her she was always enticing young girls to come to her house and meet in men's but Raymond Rivero said people said she had a sporting house but I don't know anything about that I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that is not a contradiction <laughs> I don't know nothing about uh, that. Uh, uh,
1: uh. What's a sporting house?
2: <laughs> Another informant said, Ooh, my people used to fuss me for going to that place, but I wouldn't stay away. There, the voodoo queen held all night parties for the white sports. Sometimes you couldn't get near the place for all the carriages and wagons. She charged them a dollar fifty to get in, and only had women working with her. But they were sure good looking octoroons. She would bring in nine girls with her. And the girls danced and wore a band tied around their hips in a brassiere. They were almost naked and they would dance and shake. Marie Laveau was out to make money.
1: And so you definitely see some defamation of her as well within the Louisiana Writers Project. There's a lot of writing like that about her as well, saying that she would only do the ceremonies for white people. Ah. uh, That it was purely just a money-making scheme.
2: That means they weren't invited.
1: They didn't get to go to the party. I want to go to
2: the party. She only lets white people in, honey, you can't go. I think I just saw a black guy. No, you didn't. Mm. Eat your house burger. <laughs> but mm. some of this may have to do with the infamous character, Fanny Sweet.
1: Is that what, is that what you get when you go to a sporting house for $1.50?
2: <laughs> That's a fanny owl. Uh,
1: <laughs> oh, here, take your mercury,
2: baby. <laughs> it's in the gray bag. <laughs> fanny Sweet was a person. Fine. May not have been a real name. So... She was called a procurus, known to be one, and also referred to as a bad-tempered harridan who is said to have been, quote, a thief, a confederate spy, a murderer, and a voodoo devotee. What else could we call her? She attended many of the secret meetings of the cult. Brought great quantities of charms, love potions, and amulets from Marie Laveau, and was among those arrested when the police broke up a voodoo orgy in 1860. And this was reported by Asbury later. However, he cites a December 8, 18 he cited his sources. Yes, he did. A December 8, 1861, True Delta article.
1: True, how true was it?
2: well. It was it was a uh, entire front page piece dedicated to the subject oh really but the piece was titled a modern lucretia borgia oh damn the last adventure of fanny sweet an extraordinary conspiracy and here we read that mrs sweet had a strange infatuation voodooism as practiced by the cunning and superstitious negroes of new orleans and used to expend considerable sums of money on talismans and love charms with the old black humbugs who live in that part of town. A police officer who was present at the breaking up of a voodoo dance assures us that Miss Fanny Sweet was one of the parties caught. And she was like a well-known madam, and apparently one of quite ill repute. So this may be where the idea that voodoo goes with sporting houses like and factually spies. that's so weird but anyway I'm just like, what can we say about her <laughs> so what you can see here is one of those classic examples of people practicing their culture openly and being associated with a licentious lifestyle because of it and this is the first time and the last time that would ever ever happen in new orleans surely surely oh
1: yeah definitely
2: It actually doesn't happen there as much as other places, but... Well,
1: true. (laughs) But no, so as we have discussed before, Louisiana, especially colonial Louisiana, under French rule, had a very different relationship with enslaved people and free people of color. See our Lost Cause episode. So the Catholics in New Orleans followed the old Code Noir, which was much less harsh of a guideline than what our Protestant British overlords... Would later enforce upon Louisiana.
2: I've become very bitter about this. As we've studied more and more, I'm like, they just came here and taught us how to be racist. They're total dicks.
1: There was plenty <laughs> of racism. They just made it a lot worse.
2: A lot worse.
1: American domination.
2: So, what did the Code Noir make an urban area like New Orleans look like? Like, how did that play out in kind of an early city?
1: We talked about it a lot. You had a large community of free people of color that were craftsmen and things like that. There are a lot of studies of the kind of Treme area, Mm -hmm. which Marie's house is border-ish too. And the French and somewhat the Spanish were just not as concerned with the enslaved people's religious life. They were not enforcing strict religion on them as the Protestants later would.
2: No, they got to pick They got to decide whether or not they wanted to be baptized, which I thought was kind of nice, comparatively.
1: And so, if they wanted to have some kind of African-based music, song, dance, other kind of practice, they weren't as concerned about it.
2: You mean, like, it would be allowed and people wouldn't be executed for it? Right. Okay.
1: So, you had the Place Publique, which was created by municipal ordinance in 1817, and it kind of recognized a place that already existed for decades— it was this marginal place right outside the city, like a block or two away from Marie's home, that had always been used as this kind of meeting ground. So this was this kind of cultural mixing pot for all of the marginal parts of society. And so it's like people were able to gather there on their Sundays off for recreation and even market activity. So with an influx of Le de Couleur Libre, This accelerated that kind of merging of these African rhythms with French songs as you start to get more people from Haiti and more people from the colonies starting to intermingle at this place, the Place Publique. Now, this place, at the time, was known as Congo Square.
2: Was that official or just colloquially?
1: Colloquially. It's
2: a weird adverb to repeat twice.
1: Colloquial. (laughs) So, this was very accessible, even more accessible than the St. John's Eve ceremonies. This is right on the edge of the city. You could walk there mm-hmm. and go see, and people did. And you had, at the time, This new bohemian writers, you know, wandering around, writing on things. Like
2: Tuckville was in, you know, coming to America and writing about that. And that was a thing that happened.
1: And so a lot of bohemian writers came to New Orleans, of course.
2: Because where else would you go, really? There's only New York, San Francisco, and New Orleans. Everywhere else is Cleveland, as Mark Twain once said.
1: And, you know, a lot of them observed the different kind of dances. They documented the kalenda...
2: It sounds fancy.
1: That's that gyrating kind of sexy dance. Oh. And described, you know, the beating of the bambulas, the gourds, and the banjos. Cool. Played there. And they even had like the, a contredance.
2: What's an a contradance?
1: Well, it is that high society partner dance.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: And they would have this kind of mocking version of it that they did.
2: Huh. Good on you. So at that time, it was also featured in a bunch of guidebooks. Like a what to do when you're in New Orleans?
1: Yes, it was so one person that visited it in eighteen nineteen who did some drawings and descriptions of it was Benjamin Latrobe.
2: I know that name
1: right? Sound familiar from a recent trip to d c
2: He's not the architect.
1: He's the architect of the modern capital okay. after it was burned down, he redesigned it okay. He said, I've never seen anything more brutal and savage, and ecstasy rises to madness. But he was fascinated by this, and it's interesting because he has these really early illustrations mm-hmm. as an architect of these instruments that would later become banjos and things like that that very are very cool, very important to American music. Pianist and composer Louis Moreau Gottschalk grew up near Congo Square, and he has a famous come position the bamboula which was a huge hit in paris in 1848
2: imports
1: now due to the mounting concerns about abolitionists invading the city and the threat of revolution these sunday afternoon music and dance events were shut down in 1835 resumed and then shut down again in 1851 by 1856 people of african descent were no longer legally allowed to play horns or drums in the city let that sink in
2: you can't walk a block in New Orleans without hearing somebody playing the horn or the drums. Like, it's it's not possible. I, it makes me feel like the city was dead at that moment. Like, it just, like, a little piece of it was missing.
1: So after it was shut down, it was used primarily for military exercises. And they later tried to change the name no. to Beauregard no. Square
2: <laughs> after
1: the Civil War. no. <laughs>
2: Forcibly removing people's culture from public view is always painful. But when you literally take away, like, this bright, vibrant point of interest where people have actually been allowed to maintain some of their identity and replace it with literally, literally uh, Confederate tr- troops running drills and name it after a Civil War general, like, that is the biggest of all the middle fingers. <laughs>
1: Well, and so even though it was renamed, it was still known as Congo Square to Mm. everybody. Remember, that was never even its official name.
2: Um, In Louisiana, people still do the directions thing where it's like, you know, where the K&B used to be or whatever. So, of course, it was still called Congo Square.
1: So some of those bohemian writers showed up about 20 years after Congo Square had been, at least in public, shut down. Because, you know, it continued just in private and secret, just as everything we've talked about today. So George Washington Cable and Osadio Hearn were journalists who began to exhume New Orleans' past and write kind of titillating stories about it and sell it to the papers around the country and world. So G.W. Cable was a champion of African-American rights and one of the first people that really wrote down African-American folklore. We'll keep him. Now, in one of his novels, there's this dramatic scene where a runaway slave is captured in Congo Square, and he describes it as, on a grassy plain under the ramparts, the performers of these hideous discords sat upon the ground facing each other, and in their midst, the dancers danced. They gyrated in couples, a few at a time, throwing their bodies into the most startling attitudes and the wildest contortions, while the whole company of black lookers-on, incited by the tones of the weird music and the violent posturing of the dancers, swayed and writhed in passionate sympathy, beating their breasts, palms, and thighs, in time with the bones and drums, and at frequent intervals, lifting, in that wild African unison, no more to be described than forgotten, the unutterable songs of the babule and the kanjule dances, with their ejaculatory burdens of, ay ay voodoo magnan! And I Kalinda, that's Kalinda. And so Hearn also wrote about Congo Square, saying it was the last green remnant of these famous Congo plains, where the slaves once held their bambulas, until within a few years ago, the strange African dances were still danced, and the African songs still sung. Every Sunday afternoon, the bambula dancers were summoned to a woodyard on Demand Street by a sort of drum roll made by rattling the ends of two great bones upon the head of an empty cask and I remember that m- male dancers fastened bits of tinkling metal or tin rattles about their ankles, and like those strings of copper grigri worn by the people of Sudan, those whom I saw taking part in those curious and convulsive performances, subsequently suppressed by the police, were either old or beyond middle age. The veritable Congo dance, with its with extraordinary rhythmic chant, will soon have become is completely forgotten in Louisiana as the significance of those African words which formed the hieratic vocabulary of the voodoo's.
2: I'm glad he wrote it down, but I'm also really glad he was wrong.
1: Right, so this kind of legend built up around Congo Square, and it's truly not far from the truth. It's just kind of slightly exaggerated.
2: Hmm. I meant that he was wrong about it being forgotten.
1: Oh, right. It's definitely remembered. But you mentioned that it was put in all the kind of tourist guides and Mm -hmm. all that. And so the Picayune's Guide to New Orleans, which was written as the jazz clubs were opening, it's kind of the 20s and 30s, of a Sunday evening, it presented a most picturesque and animated scene with its hundreds of dusky dancers singing their quaint half-Congo, half-Creole songs. Hundreds of the best whites, lured by the fascinating curious rhythms sung to the beating of the Tam-Tam, used to promenade in the vicinity of the square to see the dance-Congo. And many of the earliest jazz players knew of Congo Square kind of through their family stories, and a lot of these musical traditions continued in the homes. And some musical historians suggest that the early interest in Congo Square, visually spurned by Hearn and Cable's writing, kind of opened up the rest of the United States to the idea of African American culture. And without that, there may not have been This opening to allow jazz.
2: The receptivity.
1: To take a foothold. Yeah. And without jazz...
2: You don't really have American music. You
1: don't get the blues. And without blues, you don't get rock and roll. And that's just sad. One author that wrote about it, Freddie Evans, said, To me, more than physical space, Congo Square is a frame of reference. When people ask me what is the root of African American culture in this country, I say it's Congo Square. This is our reference point. Now, Wynton Marsalis agrees, writing that the bloodlines of all important modern American music can be traced to Congo Square.
2: By the way, if you haven't listened to Winton Marsalis, pause. (laughs) Go find it. Put it on. You can listen to that and this. We'll make it work.
1: So Evans continued saying, To me, it represented Africa and America. It was here that African speech and activity was concentrated. I like to think of it as more of an institution than just a location. It was a place of culture, of dancing, and small markets. For me, it's important to let all people know how Congo Square influenced our local culture. Now, Bobby Giannulli said that voodooism and its sacred rites, sacred dances were all institutionalized and acculturated in Congo Square. And to Congo Square, now, if you were to visit New Orleans, you can go. And if you go on Sunday, as we did, by luck,
2: Mm -hmm. you will run across a semicircle bench full of men with their drums, and one dude with a cowbell that rocks Get it. Get it out. It. <laughs> they will smile and greet you, and you might even, if you're very, very lucky, be told that you must come dance. No, really, only you out of a crowd of <laughs> several people.
1: I have video of you're Sam dancing, never posting it <laughs> with the women that were dancing.
2: It was a lot of fun. I'm really glad I did it. I wanted to be a stick in the mud so hard, but they would not let me.
1: But, you know, and as you were dancing, I was talking to them and they were, you know, talking about how they use this as education. You know, it's a a positive experience. Music just brings positivity into the world. And it's also a way of remembering how this was that one light in the enslaved people's life. You know, this kind of place where they could come release stress and be happy. And that's what she was telling me. Of course, that kind of lines up with everything we've been reading. It makes sense.
2: Right, It was a place of autonomy and integrity in a world of utter subjugation. It makes complete sense that it has a sacred quality and it does feel like going to church or anything. I mean, it's better than that, but it feels like going into a sanctuary. Just the idea that people have been there doing this on Sundays, like even that part of it kind of got to me. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's always been Sundays, so that's why we do it on Sundays. That idea.
1: And the park is beautiful. How it's designed now, there are these concentric circles, and they're all laid out in the brick, and it's kind of to represent the kind of circular dancing um, from the time. Beautiful, beautiful park. Highly suggest you visit if you're ever in New Orleans. But it was only known as Congo Square officially, In 2011.
2: I did not believe you when you told me that. Like, I made you (laughs) go cite your sources.
1: (laughs) Yes, and it officially became part of Louis Armstrong Park, which is just connected. Because before that, it was Beauregard Park. Because in the Civil War, there was huge changes, of course, as we've talked about, within this city. And as that came about, you had a complete change in the culture of the area, or the culture they were trying to enforce. And all of our characters are straight in the middle of it.
2: So by the time that the Civil War rolls around, Marie Laveau is a widow, again, and the social structure, which she had grown up in and was accustomed to, was completely upended. And that sort of three-tiered strata that had existed was just gone. Recent scholarship would very much like it if... Marie Laveau had been a conductress on the Underground Railroad.
1: Wouldn't that be awesome?
2: Yes, it would be very awesome.
1: It would be so cool.
2: It did not happen. That's too bad. (laughs) I know. It was not true. They said that her home was like the southernmost terminus of the Underground Railroad. And I'm like, there are no basements on St. Anne Street. Y'all are crazy.
1: (laughs) But that's not the real reason.
2: No. She and Christophe were both slave owners. People will often... You know, in trying to make this case, suggests that maybe she only bought these people in order to grant them their freedom, to manumit them.
1: Oh, that'd be great. Like, like coin coin.
2: That would also have been great. That would have been really great. But it did not happen. She and Christoph are on record as having sold their slaves to other slave owners.
1: So unlikely.
2: Unlikely. They also separated families. Uh. Yeah.
1: Let's move on.
2: Yeah. <laughs> But I just felt like that was important because that's kind of an urban legend that's cropped up in the last few years because she is in the fictionalized biography of Mary Ellen Pleasant or Mammy Pleasant. That's an episode. That's a whole episode. But it said that Mammy Pleasant learned voodoo from Marie Laveau and she actually was an early advocate of civil rights and, you know, is a very interesting figure. And people were like, well, if she was hanging out with Marie, Marie had to be into civil rights and she was in her way for her time. An advocate for a lot of people of color, but she was not a conductor on the Underground Railroad.
1: So in the obituary, it says that she was a fever nurse and that she was a minister to prisoners. I mean, does any of that carry any weight?
2: So we have no reason to think she was not a fever nurse. There's not really a good historical record of everyone who was involved in that.
1: Right, of course, because it was like whoever wasn't sick. Yeah, was helping because everyone was sick.
2: But there were a group of women known as the Creole Fever Nurses and they would take care of people kind of using more of the root medicine and that kind of stuff. Right. And their patients fared a lot better than the ones that had white doctors because the white doctors just bled everybody.
1: That kind of happens all before 1910.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But <laughs> the they, nuns
1: do better, the root doctors do better, everyone.
2: You know, one story that's always repeated is that she would put blankets on people with fevers and everyone thought she was crazy. That actually, you know, helped. But she definitely did have some do-ins with the criminal justice system. So Castellanos, who wrote one of the talent-like books about New Orleans, but did a better job citing his sources, very early writer, Stated that aristocratic ladies, politicians, and sports all relied on her supposed supernatural powers. And that from this commerce, money poured into her purse. And Zora Neale Hurston claimed that Marie could make policemen run in circles and bark like dogs and beat each other with their nightsticks.
1: Well, I believe her.
2: And then Joseph Alfred and James Santana, who were informants for the Louisiana Writers Project, said that Marie Laveau never went to jail. She was in with all the lawyers, policemen, judges, and big city officials. If you committed a crime and asked her to get you out of trouble, she would go to the high sheriff and tell him you was her friend, and he'd set you free. The judge and the sheriff submitted to her in anything. Another informant said she worked mostly for white people. She made piles of money, and sometimes she got as much as a thousand dollars but five hundred or two hundred or one hundred dollars were her popular prices clients paid her plenty to win in court cases there was always a line of carriages in front of the house and the white ladies who entered there were heavily veiled they did not hesitate to consult Marie Laveau, who would give them powders to use on their husbands and bones to put in their pockets. So this kind of just establishes that narrative of power and influence and the idea that she could help people in court, help get you out of a jam. She never went to jail. And you know what? She didn't. She didn't. Now she was known to vouch for women who had been accused of minor crimes, like disrespecting white people. And she would, like, go and be like, I'll keep an eye on them. I'll make sure they show up for their court date. They can come with me.
1: Like, post bail for them.
2: Basically. Now, one thing that does come up is, like, the death row stuff.
1: So, she actually did visit people on death row?
2: Probably. Maybe. (laughs) Okay. We don't know. So, this gets started in some of those early writings. Some of the early biographies. Herbert Ashbery writes one account of this prisoner named Mullen. He says, Laveau's ministrations to the convicted murderer of James Mullen. She supposedly brought a coffin into Mullen's cell and helped him decorate it with religious mottos and pictures of angels and saints, all enclosed in a border of metallic fringe. Mullen slept in the coffin, using for a pillow a dress which had been worn by his three-year-old daughter. Talent adds to this.
1: I'm sure he does.
2: In 1859, Marie achieved notoriety when she brought James Mullen his coffin. They worked together day after day, decorating the coffin inside and out with religious pictures. At night, Mullen slept in the casket using the dress of his three-year-old daughter as a pillow. And every day, Marie prayed with him until he was hanged.
1: There's no way that's true.
2: Well, he was convicted of stabbing a man named James Malone in a saloon.
1: So, but the coffin thing, the coffin thing is what I got in about.
2: So, he did have the coffin. Really? Yes. And there was a father named Father Default, who was a Jesuit priest, and he would go and minister to criminals. For the last two days, he had a coffin that had been purchased for him by an acquaintance in his cell, sleeping in it at night, or in the day when he felt so inclined. And his pillow was formed by a child's dress, his own child, about three or four years old and the only person belonging or related to him in New Orleans.
1: No, it's real. It's real. Holy shit.
2: Marie wasn't there decorating it with religious icons, but really, you now know that a man that was convicted of murder and hanged in New Orleans in public spent the time before that happened sleeping in a coffin using his child's dress as a pillow. Is your life not a little more interesting?
1: Someone's life is. (laughs)
2: Fine. And just as he was about to be hanged, There arose a wild, unearthly song. What were the words slowly chanted by the unfortunate madman? We could not distinguish. But there was something awful in that contrast between those joyous sounds and the mournful, sad scene.
1: But Where was the sound coming from?
2: Oh, well, it was coming from the insane asylum, which was, you know, next door to the gallows.
1: What movie is this?
2: It's just New Orleans. okay. Mulan recited a short prayer, spoke a few words, thanked the officers, and all was over. The crowd slowly dispersed, leaving the body of the unfortunate man dangling at the end of a rope. So who else did she visit? Well, there was one triple execution. Oh, no. And supposedly Marie Laveau had been all involved with that. And it was in 1859, and the men's names were Heinrich Haas, Peter Smith, and Joseph Lindsay. Now, Asbury writes in the French Quarter that Marie Laveau erected her altar in Haas' cell and prayed before it with the three men. With her assistance, Haas decorated his cell with religious subjects using lead pencil, indigo, and tobacco juice. He drew 11 pictures on the walls and on a ceiling, a larger one, depicting the host with angels praying beside it.
1: What? Did he really do that?
2: Yes. Oh my God. You're going to keep saying yes. <laughs> well, she I don't know that she was there.
1: Right. But there is documentation of the drawings?
2: Yes. They were all rough, as might be imagined, but several of them displayed many of the qualities of an artist. So that's a nice write-up, I guess. He got a good review in his first show.
1: In his last show. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Didn't need to be said. Uh, (laughs) The Pickering described his execution. This morning, Heinrich Haas, Joseph Lindsay, and Peter Smith, all three convicted of murder, suffered the penalty of death by hanging. At an early morning hour, a large crowd besieged the gates of the parish prison, eagerly seeking to obtain the sight of the terrible spectacle. This morbid craving was not, however, satisfied, and none could obtain admittance without an order from the sheriff. About 150 persons, including policemen and officials, etc., were let into the inner yard where the gallows had been erected. So was Marie Laveau there? No, Father Default was, unless that was her code name. I was going to say, here's this guy. (laughs) He's always around. He's the one doing all this. Father Dufault was the spiritual counselor, and he had celebrated mass with the prisoners in their cells. And then shortly after 10 o'clock, the three men came out. Escorted by Reverend Father Dufault, his assistant, and the officers of the prison, the prisoners were dressed in white shirts and pants, their head covered with a white nightcap, and their hands tied behind their backs. They each wore a crucifix suspended by a thick black ribbon around their neck. Their countenances were calm, even smiling. They took their seat on the fatal bench, and the hangman, disguised with a loose black domino and a mask, so like Zorro, fixed the rope around each of their necks. The deputy sheriff read the death warrant with a voice choked by emotion, and each man addressed his final communication to the crowd, acknowledging his crime and asking for God's forgiveness. Heinrich Haas, his features lit with a spiritual enthusiasm, spoke long and feelingly. After bidding farewell to the people, he began chanting a German hymn with much power. While he sang, his two companions seemed to find new courage. His words preserved a perfect composure. Father Dufault said farewell to each man and presented the crucifix, which they kissed repeatedly. Lindsay burst out in an act of contrition, repeated by the two others, and was kissed on the cheek by Father Dufault, who recited aloud an exhortation and gave blessings to the three doomed men. The hangman appeared, drew the cap over each of their faces, bid them goodbye, and disappeared into a cell behind. Suddenly, the trap door fell from beneath their feet, and three souls were sent into eternity.
1: So Marie Laveau was not present for that gruesome scene either.
2: Well, she wasn't on stage. Right. Is it on stage if you're on the gallows?
1: I guess you could call it that.
2: Okay, well, we did say he had an art opening, so I guess we're just going for it. Why not?
1: But is it pretty much widely accepted that she did go to the prisoners?
2: There are tales. There are tales of her doing
1: it. So that's a maybe.
2: It's a maybe. There's one story that she made a zombie out of a man by feeding him poison voodoo and then snuck him out of the prison. There's a story that she made a big storm and caused an execution to be canceled. I mean, the stories just get bigger and wilder as they go on. But these actually had some truth kernels. And that's why we picked them.
1: That one of the zombie one.
2: (laughs) She made him gumbo with fufu fish powder.
1: They're no fufu fish.
2: I don't know. It's not true. Okay.
1: (laughs) So with the Jim Crow era, voodoo was a crime. And informants said, if you practice voodoo, you ended up in jail. I have tons of records where voodoo priests were accused in jails for years for practicing medicine without a license.
2: Starvation Heights woman can, like, have her license grandfathered in and we can't get voodoo doctors certified. This was
1: one of the reasons they had medical licenses for them and all the quacks. I mean, Louisiana is also the birthplace of Hadakal. Yeah. They're also often charged with, like, disturbing the peace are for being suspicious. Or <laughs> being a dangerous character. Or being a kind artist. Mm, and That is probably fair sometimes. As one would expect, most of the oldest doctors or priests claimed some sort of kinship with Marie Laveau. Either through blood. They were her second cousin five mm-hmm. times removed.
2: Well, they probably were.
1: They might have been. Or just from learning from her. It's interesting because in this way, they're tying their power to her. Mm-hmm. And they're getting prestige
2: by tying
1: that power to Marie. I
2: mean, even at that point, she's becoming a legend.
1: Oh, before she was dead, she was. So interestingly, in 1918, Mother Leafy Anderson had a brilliant idea. She was going to create the Spiritual Church of New Orleans. The party line was that it did not practice voodoo. Mm. Did not. Mm -hmm. No, no, no.
2: But do you? Of course they did. Uh
1: Oh. so she kind of almost set up this like front for it to continue these more traditional practices, but had a legally government-sanctioned church that was 100% Christian, did not accept payments, only donations,
2: and so that worked
1: for a, while. a long time. Yes, there's several several branches throughout New Orleans.
2: Well, I was thinking like even um, Priestess Miriam's temple is the voodoo spiritual temple oh, i wonder
1: if there's some namesake to that yeah it probably
2: is an interesting thing has happened with marie Leveau it's become the scholarly thing to do to assume she was just a sweet old lady just
1: like in the beginning
2: it has bit. become that they want to think it's all like libel that was thrust upon her and just people talking shit about her and i'm like i don't know that that's better <laughs>
1: Like Cody Roberts wrote in his book, it's like she was an extremely powerful woman. To me, doing that, you're just taking away her legacy. Even if you take the magic out and the spells and those sorts of things, no matter what, she was a powerful, intelligent woman. And by doing that, you're taking that away from her. And that's an important element of her.
2: I agree completely. I think she was very cagey and was sort of a master of the system in which she was allowed to work.
1: Yeah, I would say that's part of her legend, actually. A lot of times people say she was a hairdresser, and she had access to a lot of white people's homes, and she was able to kind of blackmail and bribe a lot of people.
2: There may be something to that. Mary Washington, who you will remember was trained by Marie Laveau, said that she had a way with white people. She would get a gal for a married man and then tell his wife about it. And she would show the wife how to get her husband back, and that would cost plenty of money. She would tell the man that his wife was about to find out and that he better stop. In cases like that, all she had to do was fool people. So she also said that she had a black assistant who would get up early every morning and go kill some snakes and some chickens and some alligators and some other animals and then go fix the dust. The green He would go to people's homes and learn their business and he'd put cow heads or black cats on their doorstep and they would get all scared and come running to Marie and she'd tell them that they'd been hoodooed and charge them big money for a cure. She already knew all about their affairs. First of all, I love... me. I love... No, she liked her. I think she was bragging. Like, people are so stupid. Oh, uh, okay. I think it was more that. But first of all... I don't care if you know it's probably not black magic. If a cowhead shows up on your doorstep. If
1: you get godfathered.
2: <laughs> if you get godfathered, you freak out. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> it's a very certain noise you're required to make. But in addition to like that blackmail trickery thing that is always said about her, there's also like writing about how she didn't really have any money. She didn't have any money. Like If she was so powerful... Why didn't she have any money? And so the story that kind of illustrates that point has to do with Christoph dying.
1: Her second partner.
2: So Christoph got ill in the summer of 1854, and he was attempting to file for his 40 acres and a mule, right. as was due him after his service with Old Hickory of New Orleans, and due to... Dying? Well, oh no, not just <laughs> dying... Spelling errors and mistranslations.
1: Bureaucracy and death.
2: Bureaucracy and death. The
1: two things we cannot avoid.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they could not find his records in D.C. They're like, what do you mean it could be an A or it could be a U or it could be an X? What letter does his name end with? But he had put the St. Anne house up as collateral for a $5,000 loan he'd taken out in order to buy some stock. He was a speculator. He was always investing in things. He usually did okay. And he missed one of his monthly payments right before he died on June 26th of 1855. The bank planned to take the house and his three living white sisters came and contested the will. But I think that was probably pretty much irrelevant because he was in so much debt that there was really nothing left to be divvied up among the sisters after they paid the bank back and paid the undertaker and the house had to be put up for sale.
1: So Marie was kicked out of her house?
2: Hell no. Come on, get it together. Okay. So let me adjust the lens here and reset the scene. Important information to note: Marie and Christophe had a placage relationship in the eyes of the law. They were not legally married. A woman who was a partner of a man, not legally her spouse could only inherit one-tenth of his movable property. So not even his land, house, anything like that. Just a shit.
1: So penance.
2: Right. His children could inherit up to one-fourth of his entire estate. But that's still not a house. So what'd do? Well, when the bank came and took the house, they had to put it up for sale. Okay. So they just bought it back for less than $5,000.
1: Nice.
2: How do you not see that con? And like they came and looked at all the stuff in the house.
1: Like to assess it.
2: Yeah. It was the undertaker and the lawyer and the sisters and their lawyers. And they all came and Marie's house was just empty. There's just, just nothing, nothing there. there. Nothing. Just nothing there.
1: Oh, poor, poor old lady. I like her.
2: <laughs> I like her too. Like, I mean, I know that you can read that and be like, if you're reading just the facts and you're not making any Inferences. leaps, you can be like, Oh look, she didn't have enough. Or you can be like, Damn. And like sh- the reason I think she did stuff like this is because like she and Kristoff, the first time the house went up for sale at police auction and Kristoff bought it, which was when her grandmother died years earlier, he sold it for half of what it was worth to a family friend who granted him and his family use of the cottage for the duration of his lifetime. And then he went to a notary and donated the property to their children.
1: So this was all just planned out.
2: I kind of think it was. And I also kind of think she could read. Because, oh my God, if you didn't know she could read and she came in your house and left knowing all of your secrets, it would seem like magic. It would. So another interesting character
1: that's associated with Marie Laveau is Dr. John. I've seen him. Different Dr. John.
2: Not the musician.
1: He took his name from Dr. John. Was he a voodoo doctor? Well, of course. Yay! Now, on Christmas Eve, 1866, a reporter for the Daily Crescent visited the conjurer, called Devil John, at his home on Bayou Road. Now, his real name was Jean Montenay. He's also called, like, Devil John, Dr. John, Jean Grigri, Bayou John, or Voodoo John. Now, Jean Montenet was described as an eminently respectable in appearance, his clothes Parisian in style, with ebony skin embellished by tattoo marks. And eyes that held a certain cat like watchfulness of expression. Now according to the Crescent, before the Civil War, Dr. John had accumulated a respectable fortune, but owing to mismanagement and trouble with his wives. Wives? Yeah. <laughs> so he reportedly had like a large harem harem. <laughs> the records on Dr. John are extremely slim because you now you see how a lot of our staff is from the WPA, the Louisiana Writers Project. Mm. For whatever reason, the Louisiana Writers Project people did not feel like Dr. John was an important person that they needed to record a lot about.
2: There were people there like willing to talk about him, and they were like, eh, just skip that."
1: Well, they wouldn't ask. And you got you remember the guy, Pops? Yeah. They're like, "Oh, can you tell us about that?" He's like, "Nah." Okay. <laughs> fine hand me my tea <laughs> yeah so it's like you. i tell you
2: ask. what buttercup you get me another one of them little sandwiches with the crust cut off and i'll tell you anything you wouldn't know
1: <laughs> the reporter had come to have his fortune told and this the doctor did by means of a handful of shells that he held at some distance above the table and let fall it was by marking the arrangement which these took that a glimpse into the future was obtained and one of the only real writings about Dr. John is written by Laceo Hearn, who we mentioned earlier, and he published it in Harper's Weekly on November 7th of 1885, The Last of the Voodoos.
2: They've been saying that for a while. He felt like
1: this was the last big voodoo Character. priest or priestess that was still around. And he talks about in the death of Jean Monnet at the age of nearly 100 years.
2: They all die when they're 100, Apparently. Huh? Yeah. Sounds good. It does.
1: New Orleans lost the most extraordinary African character that ever gained celebrity within her limits. He was a native of Senegal and claimed to have been a prince's son, in proof of which he would call attention to a number of parallel scars on his cheek, extending in curves from the edge of either temple to the corner of the lips.
2: So like scarifications. Yeah,
1: as the uh, tattoos the other writer was talking uh, about most likely. And the writer notes that the Bambaras from Senegal where he claims to be from, do wear these disfigurations. So there is some...
2: That seems legit. A little bit
1: of truth there, at least. Now he goes on to say that an early age, he was kidnapped by Spanish slavers, who sold him at a Spanish port, and he ended up in Cuba.
2: Which is probably where he got that shell stuff. That's Santeria. That's a very specific form of divination practiced in that right. So I find it very interesting.
1: Well, and so he did earn his freedom, and he was soon worked on some Spanish vessels as a cook, and eventually landed up in New Orleans. No one really knows exactly when he landed in New Orleans, but soon it became rumored that he was a seer of no small power, and that he could tell the future by the marks upon bales of cotton. I've never been able to learn the details of this queer method of telling fortunes, but Jean became so successful in the exercise of it that thousands of colored people flocked to him for predictions and counsel. And even white people, moved by curiosity or by doubt, paid him to prophesy for them. So he became quite wealthy from this.
2: How wealthy?
1: Well, you know, it's of course all through the lens of history and uh-huh. writing. But I say he could have been worth up to $50,000. Ooh, my. He was always well-dressed, had his carriage, all of his women and he also owned several plots of land along Bayou Road.
2: Okay, that's where Marie and Jacques Paris lived when they were first married.
1: Correct. So on grand occasions, John used to distribute largess among the colored population of his neighborhood in the shape of food—bowls of gumbo or dishes of jambalaya. He maybe did it for popularity's sake in those days, perhaps, but in after years, during the great epidemics, he did it for charity. Even when so much reduced in circumstances that he was himself obliged to cook the food to be given away. I say for many years, he kept his money underground, burying or taking it up at night only. And sometimes not being able to find it.
2: Oh, that means he killed somebody.
1: Or there's treasure somewhere.
2: Oh, you can't dig the money if you kill a man. That's
1: what your family says. I know. (laughs) So, you know, he also goes on to talk about how he lost all of his money through these bad deals. And you see this trend. Happened with Marie. Mm-hmm. Happens with Dr. John. They said, oh, they were just cheated out of all their money. As we've shown Marie, it's probably not true. With John, Dr. John, the one thing we can prove is that it is not true. Really? So there are a few records of him. He's in the United States Census for 1850, 1860, 1870, and 1880. John Montanay, occupation, Indian doctor.
2: In one of the census that were taken, his occupation is just doctor, but then the census taker, in parentheses, writes, quack, asshole. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that. So we have the census. What else do we have?
1: So by the time he reached New Orleans, he allegedly was a free man. He was probably born in 1850, but we know he died at the age of 70 in 1885. He died of kidney failure. Mm-hmm. Now they also say that he was an illiterate man. Mm-hmm. And one of the stories is that some nefarious person taught him to sign his name, and he gave him a piece of paper to sign and stole all of his money. And like land. an old
2: lady in a nursing home?
1: Yeah. It's, a very, it's not true. <laughs> he could sign his name. His name is documented several places in court records, and he was most likely literate. Uh, beginning in 1843 through 1860, he was purchasing and selling real estate property and slaves, and his single largest real estate purchase was in 1851, where he purchased six lots for $60. He only had one legal marriage to Marie Armand. They were married on, in 1868 at St. Teresa Catholic Church. Now, interestingly, on the wedding record, there are witnesses. And one of the witnesses is Marie Glapion.
2: Marie Glapion.
1: Yes.
2: Like, as in Marie LeVe. what year is this?
1: 1868.
2: Okay. Yeah, that's Marie Laveau.
1: So let's talk about why it probably is. So she often did go by the widow Paris, but whenever she was trying to get her 40 acres and a mule, she started going by Glapion and claiming that they were married.
2: Yes. And she wrote an affidavit and like forged documents and stuff to that end and exclusively for a period of time went by Dame Glapion.
1: Not tricky, illiterate, don't know what she's doing. Yep, that's it. So definitely ties between these two, two of the most powerful uh, doctors and queens in New Orleans, enough to where we can, with pretty decent certainty, say that she was even the witness at his wedding.
2: And I can see her making him be like, if you're going to marry another girl, you are going to do it in a Catholic church. I can just hear it. But yeah, it's very on trend, you know, to be skeptical in writing about mytho-historical figures. And again... Because everyone wants them to be linked. And everyone's like, wouldn't that be great if they were best friends and, like, hung out and did hoodrat stuff? Everyone's like, no way. Definitely not true. Couldn't have happened. Except that they lived on the road where he owned property and rented. And she's listed as a witness at his wedding. But that's probably just an error. Probably just another Marie Galapion. Yeah. Let me roll my eyes all the way out of my head. So
1: we're kind of getting kind of to where we began. With our obituary. We have our old lady. Now she actually is an old lady. (laughs) White hair. Living at her house in St. Anne.
2: And she doesn't read a thing. And she doesn't know nobody. Never had nothing to do with them voodoo's. Deny, deny, deny. And I guess the point that all of that is making is just because you're not invited to look at it doesn't mean it's not going on. And to be dismissive of the idea of a culture happening without your eyes on it, being like, uh, no, it couldn't have happened. I didn't see it is a little ridiculous when so many people will tell you about it from their personal experience. It's downright elitist.
1: And a lot of people told the Louisiana writers project about seeing the old frail sweet lady, Marie Laveau.
2: (laughs) Oh no, they were terrified of her. One informant remembered that she was in the St. Louis cemetery with her mother And we saw an old shriveled up lady sitting by a tune. And my mama said, that's Marie Laveau, the voodoo woman. They say she was pretty when she was young, but because of the work she did, she got old and she was dried up and she looked like a witch. (laughs) And then another informant, Alice Zeno. Says I was selling pralines on Saint Anne between Burgundy and Rampart when this old woman that looked just like a ghost saw me and said, "Alep petite, alep petite, go away, little one." She was tall with snow white hair and her face was all wrinkled, and she wore a white mother Hubbard and carried a palmetto fan, and so. Marie did die in 1881, and and yet another insult to her legacy, her official cause of death is diarrhea. No. I swear to God, it's horrible.
1: And so there was a big funeral.
2: It really was a big funeral. It's not exaggerated. And
1: everyone went.
2: Everyone went, just for the nice old lady. Yeah.
1: And she was truly buried in St. Louis, number one.
2: Yes, now her tomb is the wishing tomb, but now the Catholics have gotten nervous about it.
1: (laughs) Well, one of the reasons they were nervous is that it was recently vandalized and painted bright pink.
2: Pepto-bismol pink, I think, is the color you were looking for there. It was a lot.
1: And so the cemetery was kind of like on lockdown now.
2: Yeah, You have to have an escort. You have to go in. They like check and make sure you're not carrying any Pepto-bismol or pink flamingos. But people used to leave little gifts. And the common marking for the tomb was the series of three X's. That's in reference to knocking the three times for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost to start the ceremonies.
1: And it was said that if you drew the three X's on the tomb, you turn around three times, knock, yell at your wish. And if it was granted, you need to come back and circle that X and leave Marie another offering. And there are other ghost stories that go around about the tomb. One ghost ghostwriter from 67 talking about her house saying may not the wild dancing and pagan practices still continue invisible but frantic as ever Ooh. tour guides tell of a depression era vagrant who fell asleep atop a tomb in the cemetery and was awakened to the sound of drums and chanting stumbling upon the tomb of Marie Laveau he encountered the ghost of dancing naked men and women led by a tall woman wrapped in the coils of a huge snake
2: hmm we're still getting orgy stories.
1: Still. But one popular legend that is still circulated today is that Marie never died. Some people say that she changed into a huge black crow and flew away. Like the crow you saw when we were there.
2: Matt, I feel like all the color just drained from my face. Like, I, it actually did, like, make me. You
1: didn't know that part, did you?
2: No. We were followed by this crow that, like, would not quit. Like, it would come and land and be like, caw, 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 like, the entire time we were there. And I was like, what is it trying to tell us, Jacob? What is it trying to tell us?
1: But also, there are stories about Marie's kind of eternal youth.
2: Right. In theory, she was already 100 when she died. And actually, she was 79, but who's counting? And, oh, God, I hope they don't do that for everyone. Once I'm that old, I'll be happy to be That's fine. I'll be a 100. So I think maybe because of the title of Voodoo Queen, people speculate that it's just a title. It's like it's like being Batman. Anyone could be Batman. Apparently. <sighs> so of course, you know, she needed a successor.
1: And so a lot of people think that one of her daughters may have taken up the crown. Fair. Or the tenyon.
2: So her eldest daughter, Marie Curie, from everything I can tell, is probably not Marie the Second, at least not taking into account the official record. She entered into a relationship with a man named Pierre Crocker, who is 24 years older than she was and already married. But he was the son of Basile Croquer, who was a famous fencing master and oh math my. professor. Both. And military man. They're both free men of color. And he was, Basil in his day was called the handsomest man in New Orleans. Oh, well, But they had a son named Joseph Eugene Crocker, and he would later petition for inheritance, stating that his mother had died in 1862. And that's our best evidence of why she's not Marie.
1: Because she died too early.
2: Right, but we don't have a death certificate. So some people speculate that this is all just like a farce, and she actually is alive and does replace her mom, and it's some like basically tax evasion scheme, which... I could get on board with. I could buy that.
1: Well, and also she has her other daughter, Marie Philomé Clapion, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and so on. The inscription on the family tomb it says that she died on the eleventh of June, eighteen ninety-seven, aged sixty-two years. She was a good mother, a good friend, and missed by all who knew her. Those who pass pray for her. So she kind of continued in the family tradition <laughs> by loving a man who she could not marry. George Legendaire.
2: Like, Mauder Legendaire? From White Zombie? That's probably where
1: they got the name from.
2: It's a great name. I wish it was my name.
1: So in most written documentation, she went as Marie Legendaire. How she was listed on the directories, what she gave to the paper, and what her birth certificate of her children read, even though they did not get married.
2: That's not a big deal.
1: Her existence was recorded several times by the Louisiana Writers Project, saying that they now passed...
2: Yeah, she actually had a daughter who moved to St. Louis and is listed as white on all her documents. Yeah. The
1: whole family started doing that and disavowed any kinship to Marie Laveau.
2: Philomel did this?
1: That's what some people told the Louisiana Writers Project. Oh, uh, remember, girl. you got to take everything that they, That with a grain of salt. But she also told the Daily Picayune in 1890. That Marie Laveau died about nine years ago, a devout Christian and Catholic, and stoutly denies that her mother was ever a voodoo queen or had the least connection with the mystical order. Philomene was characterized as a pious woman who attends Mass regularly every morning, is devoted to orphan children, many of whom she has raised at her own expense. Her reverence for that memory of her mother is beautiful to witness, and she keeps in each chamber of the old home an altar to her memory. (laughs) Put those two pieces together.
2: Why are people so stupid? Jesus Christ. She has altars in her house, and so we're not going to talk about it? To
1: her mother. With, you know, saints in and every, candles.
2: In every yeah. room in her home? Yeah. I like my mama, but I'm not putting one in every room. Lord, people, come on, y'all.
1: The piece ends by declaring that Madame Legendaire never had any connection with Voodoo, and that she maintained her mother's old home for the sake of the happy and memorable past. Mm-hmm. And you do have informants from the Louisiana Writers Project agreeing with this. But then there's the other side of the story. Many people also claim that she continued with her mother's legacy, taking on the name and taking on her practices. And that this could explain some of that eternal beauty mythos that's around her. Zora Neale Hurston wrote about her that she at first resisted and the voodoo practitioners such as Jim Alexander would come to her and tell her and she radiated power. But one night, a great rattlesnake entered her bedroom and spoke to her. After that, she went back to Dr. Jim and asked to be initiated. She continued the ceremonies at St. Anne's house. He used to make hands and gree gree. One informant described, before the meeting, Marie Laveau would thump her feet. Don't be scared. It's not going to hurt you. When he comes, it'll be with lightning and thunder. And I saw the lightning and thunder go through their room. I was so scared. Before leaving, Marie would give those present a blessing, rubbing oil into their left palm, and, and me left. You surely had the belief. Now on Monday night, under the cloak of darkness in Congo Square, she would still hold ceremonies under a large tree known as the Wishing Tree. People would bring offerings and food and place them in the hollow. They would sing and dance and eat, and anyone that needed food could come. One informant said, whenever there was food placed in the tree, somebody would always take it. Nobody ever put anything that would harm anyone. It was there for paying for the square and a way to help somebody who needed help. Now the Times Democrat in 1891, just after Maria's death, Murray the when the voodoo's were a power among the ignorant and superstitious denizens of the slums contiguous to Congo Square, they entered at night, and when the moon shines through the rain, Prepare the haunted voodoo tree for their fetish dances. They would deposit the feet of toads, the heads of chickens, the preserved toes of dead people, and a great steaming tin bowl of stew, compounded of various disgusting and unsavory articles. The individual to be charmed was stood in the hollow tree, and the voodoo queen sat down in front of him. Her oldest hag beat upon on a tankard, and the rest of the crew joined hands and danced with the most horrible contortions of face and body among the enchanted tree. The people to be charmed placed beneath the bowl of stew the money which he owed the witches for their enchantment. And now while that's a ridiculous story, it does show that the ceremonies with the voodoo queen in Congo Square that are reported... In the Louisiana Writers Project in the 40s, were occurring in 1891 Mm -hmm. after Marie Laveau died.
2: Oh, yeah, there are a bunch of informants that say, like, you know, when they were kids, they knew her and they were born in like 1880. And they're like, that math doesn't work. I mean, there is a ton of writing on that. And so that just
1: confuses the story even more. So, you know, we've continued to talk about the Louisiana Writers Project, and it is something that is extremely valuable to our history books into our culture into really knowing what was going on at the time with really the state of the entire country but especially in louisiana and florida and to the south because they were able to get a lot of these stories about folk magic about voodoo and also is the organization that started collecting slave narratives But prior to the Great Depression, there was no formal documentation. Lots of secrecy. All these rituals were extremely malleable. And they're changed from practitioner to practitioner. You can go to one person and go to their neighbor and it'd be a completely different thing.
2: Well, it's very personal. And it had to be. I guess, like, there couldn't be schools. You know, it couldn't be a seminary, I guess, out in the middle of Jackson Square.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, you couldn't even have, like, a peristyle. Or anything yeah. like that. It would just be in your house. And mm-hmm. have to be hidden. But you do see this kind of changes in voodoo over time. You know, we've talked about how the ideas of zombies have changed. And we've got those ideas of the evil witch voodoo priestess that's going to hex you. <laughs> and you continue to see these stories. Interestingly, I saw there was like a brief, like a little mini resurgence in 1970s of uh, voodoo in African-American communities. Mm-hmm. But it didn't stick
2: it didn't make as it my didn't make it didn't
1: make as much as like nation of islam mm-hmm. and other kind of afrocentric religions i could not find like a whole article about it i really wanted to read about it <laughs> so when you just go write that go
2: 1970s voodoo anyone that sounds awesome anyone?
1: imagine the illustration on your book
2: mm. oh my god now i'm sorry i'm not leaving i'm staying here with this image <laughs> so i'm so glad we're over that
1: you mean being scared of voodoo? Yeah. I hope after listening this much, you're only as scared as voodoo as you are of any other religion.
2: I'm terrified of it.
1: As long as it's everybody.
2: It's everybody. It's all equal.
1: Equal like. opportunity terror. Yes. <laughs> so we started with a murder.
2: Bookends, anyone?
1: Bookend murders? Yeah.
2: The terrible news is that we are not over it. We are still scared of voodoo. It still makes us nervous. It's still creepy. But to be fair, a lot of people are scared of Catholicism, too. Y'all do some weird shit.
1: That's what I said, as long as it's equal scare. Yeah.
2: So we can't talk about voodoo in New Orleans and not talk about the Rampart Street murder.
1: You mean the Demon Voodoo murder house? Yes. Yeah, it's been investigated by paranormal teams and written up in every paper, and especially every paranormal site.
2: In green on black, for sure. So from The Independent, if this were a pitch from the sick imagination of a horror film scriptwriter, it could hardly provide more detail. Any studio boss with a stomach for this sort of thing would be transfixed. The protagonist are two young lovers with vagabond spirits and carefree good looks. The setting, moreover, is ideal. The French Quarter of New Orleans in an apartment one floor above a shop of a voodoo priestess The narrative is compelling also. The film moves quickly to a flashback of more romantic times of the couple, Zachary Bowen and Addie Hall. is profiled in newspapers all across the United States as the two are among only a handful of diehards who refuse to leave the French Quarter in the days after Hurricane Katrina. They gather fallen tree limbs and make fires and trade booze for fresh water. Then there is now a suicide and a murder. With a sickening culinary twist.
1: And that writer gets why people are interested in this. (laughs) So right.
2: So this does happen in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. There are two bartenders living in New Orleans. uh, Zachary Bowen and Adrian or Addie Hall. They're both 28 years old. Now Zachary had actually become a sergeant in the United States Army over the course of his tour in Kosovo and a tour of Iraq. And some of his time in Iraq was spent at Abu Ghraib.
1: So they met a little bit prior to Katrina, and supposedly they fell in love as the storm hit the city whenever he offered her shelter.
2: Oh yeah, that'll make you like somebody.
1: And they kind of became these local folk hewers. They didn't evacuate, they lived this like survivalist lifestyle. They fashioned a makeshift stove, they did barter with hoarded food, making cocktails. Addie gained particular notoriety for her method of ensuring the security of her neighborhood she would flash the cops (laughs) they would come by more
2: often they upped their patrols yeah
1: (laughs) they were profiled in papers around the country in the mobile register addie said we're having a civilized hurricane describing how they would share cocktails and cigarettes on their stoop with the occasional reporter or red cross worker who happened by it's actually been kind of nice bowen added and i'm getting healthier eating right toning up Hall said, we've been able to see the stars for the first time. Before, there was a 24-hour lit city, and now it's peaceful.
2: If nothing bad had ever happened to her and all I'd seen were her YouTube documentaries or like interviews, she and I would not have gotten along. Because, <laughs> yes, that happened just so you can see the stars. Get in the car and fucking drive out of the city if you want to see stars. If you need to flood the entire city. Sorry, I'm very touchy about Katrina.
1: <laughs> but as the city kind of got back on its feet and they started back in their bartending jobs people started to notice a change in the couple. They would be fighting and drinking and not showing up for work. Once during an argument, Addy pulled a gun on Zachary and was arrested for it. Zachary was arrested for drugs a short time later. And in September of 2006, they were evicted from their apartment. So they moved into a space on North Rampart above the Voodoo Spiritual Temple. Now supposedly the fighting got even worse and... They stopped going into work altogether soon after. Now, Addie accused him of cheating on her.
2: Addie actually went to their landlord and was like, "Uh, he's been cheating on me, so I'm going to kick him out. So don't let him back in. Out of nowhere, the landlord was sort of surprised. But then things escalated.
1: So in a note describing the incident, Zach wrote, I killed her at 1 a.m. Thursday, October 5th. I very calmly strangled her. It was very quick. Eleven days later, Bowen jumped to his death from a building in the French Quarter. On the scene, police found a key and a note with an address wrapped in a plastic bag inside Bowen's pocket. They were led to the apartment and found a note spray-painted on the wall that led them to the kitchen. Addie's head and hands sat in pots on the stove. Her arms and legs were in trays inside the oven. They had been cooked. The rest of her body was wrapped in a trash bag inside the refrigerator. He had dismembered her in the bathtub and then tried to further butcher her for cooking reasons. One report even says that he had cut up carrots and potatoes and had seasoned some of her body. However, there was no evidence of cannibalism occurred from the autopsy of Zachary's stomach.
2: And also an examination of the remains. That's really morbid, but there were no bite marks.
1: So, in Zach's note, said this is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took. You send a patrol car to 826 North Rampart. You will find the dismembered courts of my girlfriend Addie in the oven, on the stove, and in the fridge, and a full signed confession for myself, Zach Bowen. I scared myself, not by the action of calmly strangling the woman I've loved for one and a half years, and then desecrating her body, but by my entire lack of remorse. I've known forever how horrible of a person I am ask anyone and decided to quit my job and spend the $1,500 cash I had being happy until I killed myself. So that's what I did. Good food, good drugs, good strippers, good friends, and any loose ends I may have had. I didn't contact any of my family, so that'll explain the shock. I had a fantastic time living out my days. It's just about time now.
2: It's a strangely articulate account. And a strangely logical thought pattern for somebody who is so clearly beyond the pale. I mean, I think
1: that most people with a logical mind could look at this and say, this guy has severe PTSD along with a severe drug problem. And is what most likely led him into the situation that he was in, along with having a very tumultuous relationship mm-hmm. with his girlfriend.
2: But most people are not going to look at this logically, are they? course not so here's an example of an ignorant headline demons voodoo and a Grizzly murder in new orleans and then some people decided that bowen was clearly possessed by a voodoo spirit and then there's also you know just a strain of thought that voodoo itself is so dark that it drove him insane definitely and then you know they they do have some integrity here they do say but this temple is mainly associated with positive stuff so many of the locals don't think it has to do with personal demons at all another account states but rather very literal ones they point out that the point at which the couple moved in above the voodoo shop marks their arguments and disagreements escalating dramatically they claim it's possible an evil spirit or some dark magic or voodoo curse associated with the place had influence over them and ultimately consumed and possessed bowen forcing him to do this grim deed with such ruthless barbarity what do you think?
1: I mean, I think first it trivializes the real problems that he probably had, which upsets me because we don't talk about things like PTSD enough in our society. And it is a real problem. And a lot of people that have PTSD from military service do commit suicide every year.
2: Right. During Obama's term, he actually instituted a policy in which he would not only write letters to servicemen and women who were killed in the theater of war, he started writing letters to the families of servicemen and women who committed suicide after as well.
1: And so it trivializes that. And then it also amps up, this what we've been talking about, this really negative, false narrative of voodoo being this dark, grisly, evil thing that will possess you and make you kill your girlfriend
2: it pulls all the wrong threads it's and i mean not to mention they just lived out katrina like however much they were like we're fine katrina was horrible 1800 people died it was not funsies
1: and you continue to see this to this very day yesterday i saw an article on code switch on npr where someone was like i saw a voodoo doll costume at the store that my daughter wanted and it was age appropriate but i just don't know if it's culturally appropriate and of course the you know the writer was like um it's not (laughs) (laughs) but also pointed to the important element that if you have to think about it it's probably not
2: (laughs) i wonder if this is offensive yep but you know you do have the option of just you know (laughs) not thinking about it which seems to be a a choice that that some people make like for example american apparel made that choice in 2015 when they put up a window display for halloween that was voodoo themed complete with faux sacred font objects and veves and sons and yeah wow
1: i mean everyone knows how appropriate american apparel is at all times
2: right It's the place where hipsters go to get offended. But according to Chantrell Lewis, writing for Ebony, when an African spiritual practitioner asked the company employee about the reason for the display, the employee replied that it was for the celebration of Halloween.
1: Of course.
2: And so a change.org petition was quickly put up, which read, the Vodun-themed window display using faux sacred fawn iconography is culturally insensitive and insinuates that a world religion that has been viciously and incorrectly maligned for centuries is spooky and upholds the specious belief that African and African-derived religion and culture are seasonally appropriate to sell Halloween-inspired items. Now I feel a little bit guilty for doing this for a Halloween episode.
1: Except I'm always at the crossroads going, our show's not scary.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> our show's not scary. Why do people say our show is scary? We've talked about this. It's because we look at the real things. Yeah. It's not the stories. It's what's behind them.
2: And that's oftentimes a little more disconcerting. I think that it comes down to intention and respect and knowing that you don't know it all. Whenever you're approaching kind of the subject of voodoo, you know, you can see the absolute negatives. You can see the, the bad reputation. You can see this age old stereotype that's being perpetuated. You, you know, just looking at the Rampart Street murder. But it's so only half the story. It's so not what actually happened there, if that makes sense. It did happen, but it's not the story of what happened to voodoo there.
1: Right. And it's not the intent that was there.
2: No, because there was a fire in that same building in February of 2016 and the temple was badly damaged. And the people who lived upstairs in the apartment that was supposedly cursed were the people who woke up and called 911 and got him there in time to get some of the things out. And priestess Miriam Shimani decided that she was going to rebuild, and she set up a crowdfunding site. And within a year, she'd opened in her new location, and it's now the healing spiritual temple. And it's in Faubourg Marini, and she told the Loyola Maroon, "It's like it was something that was inevitable happen. It wasn't about crushing me or destroying anything. It's to unbox a pattern in order to see how the divine has organized a body of humanity." Surrounding a space that you're sitting in you reach a pivotal point in your existence where you think Maybe you were supposed to have a moment so you can see how much has become a part of your life She said those who have helped me have been extraordinary to see the spirit working with my friends to help me pack is amazing Things work out
1: and that's the side you don't see in the movies and in the newspapers And on the paranormal shows You don't see the community the community that comes together to rebuild the temple, which has been burned down.
2: You get half the story. And I don't think that's enough.
1: No, because only half of the story allows these tropes and this misinformation to continue to perpetuate. And so when we hear a story about a voodoo murder, we need to stop.
2: Pause.
1: And we need to think of what else might have been going on.
2: We're taking away humanity from everyone involved. We're shortchanging the narrative of the people whose lives were taken, and we're shortchanging an incredible, rich history by othering it, by making it that bad thing we don't understand, the only thing that makes it make sense, and by creating that really short, easy path that, like, oh, this is terrible. I don't want to process it. Terrible murder. Oh this religion scares me, I don't want to process it. Let's lump those together and then I'll just be done. We're letting ourselves off the hook, and people deserve to be seen and heard.
1: And that's not just a story.
2: It's not just a story.